our guest today is a guy that I actually just met about a month ago, where I, and, and I bought my first crested gecko from him. Uh, he's uh, He's got his own podcast, his own YouTube channel, and knows a whole lot about crested geckos. So I want to welcome to the podcast today, Nick from Gecko Galaxy. What's up? How's it going? How man? you doing, man? Thank you. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, and and thank you for Absolutely. having me on your podcast. Yeah, thank you for coming on our podcast. <laughs> it's a huge, <laughs> huge deal. Um, right on. Video's doing really well. Seems like people like watching. So uh, yeah, very cool. We had a great time talking to you. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I, I hope I uh, didn't offend you. I know I was teasing you a little bit. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, I mean that's that was pretty tame compared to what my brother and Gabe do to me. So you know. <laughs> Right on, right on. I'm the, I'm the butt of the joke always. It's cool. <laughs> well, for people that uh, maybe haven't seen that podcast, not aware of you, uh, you actually were in the um, the video I made about uh, the Moundsville uh, reptile expo they had, the, the Tri-State yeah. Exotic Animal Expo. Uh, you had That's a little right. cameo in there as well. But if you could just introduce yourself, tell people who you are and what you do. <laughs> yeah, man. So uh, I'm Nick. Sheeler is my last name. And... Uh, you know, I've been in reptiles basically as long as I can remember. Um, I sort of have the same kind of story as everybody else, man. You know, I grew up uh, in Florida my younger years, so no shortage of lizards and frogs and turtles and things to go and catch. And that's pretty much where it started for me, man, was just catching stuff, uh, going out, you know, finding things. And it didn't really evolve into this herpeticulture stuff until – I was about 15. I went to the pet store. Uh, my dad told me I could get a fish tank. So I went to the pet store to try to get a, you know, an aquarium set up and I saw Chinese water dragons and I just fell in love. I had to have one. So I got one of those instead, brought it home, uh, realized that the pet store told me to do everything basically wrong, started doing a bunch of research, started upgrading. It just got crazy from there. Um, you know, I upgraded him a bunch of times until he was in like a four by two enclosure. And in the meantime, I started picking up other things. So all throughout, you know, high school, living with my dad and my stepmom, my entire room was just lined with enclosures. There was basically just oh, like wow. a small little space for me to walk around and get to my bed and stuff. Everything else was enclosures. That was pretty <laughs> much my whole life. And it was just keeping back then, man, just trying to keep uh, all the species that I could get my hands on, anything I thought was cool. And then uh, went to college for the first time and got rid of pretty much everything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you go to college, you go to live in a dorm. I went out of state, so, uh, and, uh, didn't have any reptiles pretty much throughout that whole time. I would come back in the summers and work at a pet store, so it made it hard to not, you know, have things because I would see them, mm. things that I want in the pet store. But, uh, yeah, man, just, uh, picked it back up after I left college in 2010, uh, started getting into bearded dragons, and that was the first time I thought, you know, about actually breeding. So I was like, all right, let's, uh, Let's breed bearded dragons. And that's what I did. I started breeding bearded dragons. I started breeding corn snakes shortly after that. Started breeding leopard geckos, western hognose snakes. Um, that was sort of my repertoire for a while. I was doing that under the, you know, quote unquote guys. I called it snapdragon reptiles back in the day. <laughs> and then that sort of just dissolved, you know, got married, had a kid, decided to go back to college, which is where I am now. Mm -hmm. So we moved and then downsized again to just one bearded dragon. And, you know, didn't take very long for me to be like, man, one bearded dragon's not enough. I got to have more reptiles in my life. So I went to uh, a reptile expo here, not the one that you were talking about, but a different one, and picked up a crested gecko. Got okay. into those guys basically because, you know, living in this apartment, uh, I could do it easily without a lot of excess electricity, living at room temp, you know, things like that, and also not a lot of excess space. So just started with one. 
And then eventually I got a female to go with him once I realized he was a male. And it grew from there. So I'm into, you know, my, my third solid season now of producing my own geckos, uh, mainly focusing on new Caledonian species like crested geckos and gargoyle geckos. Although the tanks behind me have my uh, Pine Island Chihuahuas. It's another new Caledonian species that uh, I'm hoping to breed next year. And uh, obviously cool. Gecko Galaxy was sort of born out of that. I think I've found my niche with geckos. I do want to get into some other things eventually and get back into some things I used to do, not bearded dragons, because yeah. <laughs> they're, they're crazy. <laughs> they, they make too many babies. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, Gecko Galaxy, that's, that's where that came from. Very cool. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. You just mentioned uh, the pet store where you got your bearded dragon, gave you all the wrong information. <laughs> and that seems to be, no matter what kind of exotic pets someone gets, very rarely does the pet store get it right. And it's really easy for us as keepers to just trash them. But like I've met a couple of people at my local box pet store, and they're like, they're not, they're employees there. They're not bad people. They're just, you know, college students they're young and they have like they really like fish they know a lot about fish or they know a lot about dogs and they're working at a pet store and somebody's asking them about chameleons or tarantulas and it's like they only know what the pet store and like the information they give them which is usually pretty pretty out of date uh or just wrong (laughs) so it's like i i was at the pet store the other day and somebody came up and was, uh, I was, I was, uh, looking to get a tree frog, a red eyed tree frog. And I knew they had one there. So I was asking questions, basic questions, you know, like, uh, like what species is it? And they had no yeah. idea. <laughs> and it's just like, mm, that's a problem. <laughs> like, I don't, right. you know, they're like, well, can I help you? And I'm like, yeah, there's a, a meme from Parks and Rec with Ron Swanson where he's yep. like walking through the hardware store. Like, I know, I more, know than more than you. Than you. <laughs> yeah. It's <that> that's <laughs> kind of what I was like, I wanted to say, like, you're not you can't help me (laughs) but it just seems a rude thing to do yeah i i I can't help but feel the same way every time i'm in a pet store around here man i go at least once Mm -hmm. or twice a week to pick up a a small number of larger bugs because i really can't get you know them anywhere else and i'll usually look around or sometimes i'll overhear conversations going on with you know associates and customers and i'll just be like oh boy and get out of here (laughs) yeah a couple of them, like, they know me now and they watch the channels. So if I'm like walking through the reptile department, when a customer asks them a question, they're like, I don't know, but I bet that guy does. And I'm like, Hey, yeah, I don't work here. Put, <laughs> put me on the payroll and I'll start answering. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't say that. I try to help out if I can, but you know, a lot of like, I think I've told this story before, but last time I was there, somebody was wanting to buy a Taylor Swift scorpion and the guy who the customer was wanting to know if it was male or female. Or what species it was, or something like that. that, That's irrelevant. But they were like, I don't know, but this guy probably does. They would you come take a look at it? And they open up the enclosure. You know, they kind of like pull out the drawer, open up the lid. I look at it. I'm like, I don't know if it's male or female, but I do know that it's not alive. (laughs) Like that is a dead tailless whip scorpion. Yeah, it has been dead for at least a week. (laughs) Like it is, it is, it is definitely dead and dried out. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of felt bad, like. I hope it didn't cost you a sale, but <laughs> it's not good. But I mean, those are hard to keep alive, even if you're an expert. Like they're they're not the easiest. Like I don't know why they're yeah. selling them. Yeah, I've had that happen with my local big box store around here, where something will just pop up random. Like you know, they've, they've had crazy species that you just wouldn't expect to see, and they're priced appropriately. Usually, I mean, usually they're they're high dollar animals, and they they got them listed for high dollar. I'm like, why would you even get that here? I mean. 
I, I know just from having crested geckos that are like mid-range as far as price is concerned that it's hard to sell them in this area. It just generally is. Can't really get a lot of people interested in them. Um, yeah. And I don't know if that's just, you know, maybe they've got their sights set on something from somewhere else or, you know, they just would rather not spend their money on a gecko. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like an, a $3,000 monkey-tailed skink in a Petco. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure how that's going to go. And then how are you going to take care of right. it properly? A monkey-tailed skink. Yikes. Yeah. I don't even know how to take care of a monkey-tailed skink properly. Stay with us. We'll be right back. What's all around you, almost everywhere you look, and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. That's some of my frustration with the local pet stores around here. The the chain ones, I should I should say, is, is that they're selling an animal, but they they don't carry the supplies that you need to properly take care of it. You know, and it's like, how can you ethically do that? <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. don't, I'm not saying don't sell the animal, but at least get the correct supplies in because that would help me out. Sure. Because there's just a lot of times I go to the, like the Petco or whatever <laughs> nearby, and like I need something specific, like a bioactive substrate or something, and and they just don't they don't stock it. Uh, but yet they're selling poison dart frogs that pretty much need that high moisture environment. It's like you aren't, you're not selling enclosures that will work for them. You're not selling substrates or plants or anything that they need. <laughs> so you're just kind of like, here, here's an, a glass aquarium and some very fragile dart frogs. Good luck. You know, it's, it's frustrating. Yeah. yeah it's unfortunate. But that's one I thing I, uh, we... I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was, I didn't thought you were finished. <laughs> That's my bad. I said that, uh, I, I think we spoke about it before that, you know, unfortunately a lot of the decisions about what they carry and stuff are made at corporate with those large chains. So mm-hmm. they don't necessarily know, they know what they know. You know, they have somebody who's putting together a list of things that they should sell, you know, and then. If if they don't cover everything, then that's just what gets sent down the chain, you know, to the store. So yeah, yeah. There's probably I, a handful of people within the store that know, you know, what they mm-hmm. need, but they getting corporate to get it to stock, get it stocked is you know, almost right, impossible. right. You know, and, and we we both live in West Virginia, so there's not like any massive uh, cities with you know a million people or you know half a million people or anything like that. So they don't. There's not the market for a lot of those exotic pet supplies. So I, I understand why those stores don't stock them. And sometimes sometimes they randomly will get something in that's pretty cool. But you know, I was uh, talking to one of the guys at the local store. I I overheard the manager having a conversation. I just interjected myself. <laughs> they were talking about placing an order for live animals and i was like wait you like what what animals do you have like on your list that you can order and he he was explaining to me that they used to be able to they used to have a a long list and they could figure out what people they think their customers would want what people have asked for stuff like that and he's like but now it's it's pretty basic like we have a, a about a dozen animals we can request other than that, they just send us stuff. So like, you know, tarantulas and a lot of the snakes and, and other reptiles and amphibians, they, they don't even, 
know if they have a customer base for it and they can't say we want this or we don't want it. Corporate just sends it to them and, and they're stuck with it. I'm just like, that is, that's that just doesn't make sense to me. Um, but what I was going to say earlier is that I, I really appreciated when I met you at the expo and was getting that crested gecko from you. Uh, you know, we had talked, I, I talked to a bunch of other people beforehand. I mean, this was like, it's well over a year I've been researching and talking to people that keep these geckos because I've, I've wanted one uh, and I had like intentions on buying it at NARBC or, you know, one of the expos that I go to and they just kept getting canceled because of COVID and stuff. So it just, it felt like this very long learning process, you know, watching a lot of YouTube videos, talking to YouTube creators and people that keep them and getting other, everybody's experience and stuff. But when I, when I bought it from you, I didn't want to be like, Hey, I already know everything. Kind of just wanted to see, you know, what the interaction would be like. And I thought it was very cool that you were so well-spoken as far as like, you know, telling me what lineage it was like stuff that, I mean, that was over my head to be honest. I was like, I don't even know what he's talking about right now, but then also talking a lot about the care and stuff like that. Like it just seemed very responsible. And, uh, and I know that a lot of, you know, small breeders or, you know, people that are dealing in a very specific species, uh, or genus typically seem to do that. But my experience, especially dealing with pet stores and some people that I've met at expos, like, they're just like, oh, this is on my table. I'm selling it, but I don't know how to take care of it. It's like, so that was refreshing. And I was like, I had a lot of confidence in getting this gecko from you just because you were so good at just explaining the care and husbandry and, and stuff like that. I mean, is, do you find that that is um, a lot of your customers need that information? Or do you think the majority of customers that come to you like already have a, a pretty good knowledge of you know how to take care of these animals? No, in my fairly limited experience doing these shows, um, you know, I've really been doing them heavy for just the past year, year and a half. I did sporadic ones before that. Interacting with customers, the majority of them don't really know what they want necessarily when they come up to the table. Um, you know, they see the crested geckos, they see the other things, and they, they're like, oh, this is cool. What is it? You know, they basically, the first question is usually, what is it? You know, they'll see gecko galaxy on the sign and they'll be like, okay, this guy sells the geckos. And, you know, so what kind of geckos are these or what kind of geckos are these? And I'm like, well, they're, they're crested geckos. And then I explain, you know, where they come from. And, you know, they ask if they're hard to take care of. And, you know, luckily for me, the species that I focus on, I can, I can honestly say they're really not that difficult to take care of. They're easy. You know, I don't have to yeah. go into, you know, crazy parameters or anything. Cause, you know, as long as you stay within a, a pretty, uh, modest range of, of temperatures and humidities, then you, you can have success with a crested gecko. So, yeah, most of my customers, you know, or potential customers don't necessarily know even what a crested gecko is when they come to the table, uh, let alone how to care for it. But there's another small percentage, obviously, that they just know what they're looking for. They're, you know, prospective breeder like myself. You know, they have a bunch mm. already. They're just looking to add to the collection. So usually those yeah. things are just, you know, uh, what, you know, what's the lineage on this, you know, stuff like that. Do you know anything? You know, sometimes uh, can you come down on the price? <laughs> like so, yeah. Yeah. That like really turns me off uh, when I was watching a lot of YouTube videos on crested gecko care uh, or just crested geckos in general. They start getting into uh, the different morphs and lineages and like, well, if you have this type of crested gecko and you breed it with this type, then it could produce 
possibly this really cool rare morph and i don't even know if i'm explaining it correctly but it would just like I, my eyes would just glaze over like i don't i don't care about that yeah. <laughs> i just want to know how to take care of this thing and that's part of the reason i wanted to have you on the podcast is i've, I've got two of them set up over here behind me just off camera <laughs> and uh i'm just going to pick your brain a little bit make sure i've got everything set up correctly um yeah, but you sure. were even selling enclosures weren't like you had some like do-it-yourself like handmade enclosures you were selling to people yeah yeah real basic stuff so you know yeah. when you when you start doing the thing at the le- at the level that i'm doing it and then even more most of the time you know unless you just have a huge amount of capital to put into large caging units like pvc enclosures or a whole bunch of these exoterras something like that then you know you can go basic so you see there's some plants behind me and right there where i'm pointing with my thumb there's a little stack of six quart boxes um with little holes cut in the front with screen so those six quart boxes i sell those at the show because they're what i use for my hatchling crested geckos when they hatch out you know and they've been in the incubator for about 24 hours i go ahead and i move them into a little shoe box with that very simple paper towel substrate a little bit of uh, like balled up plant in the back part of the enclosure so they have nice little uh, tight areas to hide in and climb in a little water dish little dish for food and that's pretty much it. And I keep them at room temperature here in my apartment. I keep the apartment around 74 degrees all the time. And they're pretty happy with that. There's a nighttime drop. They're cool with that too. Upper 60s, not a problem. I'm sure it could probably go lower and you wouldn't have a problem either. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I decided to start selling those at the show. Um, and surprisingly, they do really well. Um, and a lot of times I sell them for things that aren't even on my table. <laughs> you know, people will come and they'll, they'll get something from somebody else, but they'll come over and they'll grab a box from me. So I sell those. Yeah. I sell medium size. They're 27 quarts for sort of like a grow out gecko, something that's about 10 or 12 grams, getting too big to be in that six quart enclosure. Um, and th- that's the way I'm keeping most of my geckos here at home, although I am trying to evolve into a different system. I mean, you can see my chihuahuas are set up in fully bioactive uh, enclosures behind me. It'd be nice to have all my geckos in those, but honestly, I don't have the space for it um, or the money to buy a bunch of exoterras right now either, <laughs> to be mm-hmm. fair. Um, yeah. So I have most of my geckos. Obviously, my babies are in the six-quart tubs. I have a few grow-outs in those 27 to 30-quart range, and then most of my adult-crested geckos live in like 50 five to 65 quart bins. They're variable. Sometimes I go to the store to buy new bins and they don't have the exact same kind I bought the last time. So I have to get slightly different size. And they're just on shelving gotcha. units like that. And I try to keep LED lighting over top so that it gets nice and bright during the day and then shut everything off darkness at night because they're nocturnal. So they're going to okay. be uh, you know, doing all their stuff at night. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, something that I get a lot in the comments of my videos. People are just like, you know, you spend tens of thousands of dollars on exoterras enclosures. And I'm like, no, not really. <laughs> but there are a few yeah. I bought new, you know, like uh, I got that, the Paladarium. I bought that brand new, the dart frog enclosure. It was like that new frog and co one because I really wanted that specific enclosure for the poison dart frogs that I bought new. But I would say 90% of all of the exoterra and Zoomed glass enclosures I have, I I picked up from like Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace. Like I'm always looking for somebody that's like moving or cleaning out a garage or a basement. It's like, hey, I got this enclosure, 20 bucks. It's like it's $150 enclosure. I will buy that for $20 all day. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's yeah, one mean, of my, my hacks. 
Yeah, I mean, I get that. I look all the time. I, I feel like the market just close to where I am is bad for that. Like, I don't find them mm. on Facebook Marketplace a lot. I don't find them on uh, on Craigslist a lot here in the area where I'm at. I would have to drive quite a bit to pick up anything used. I was lucky enough to get these ones. They're 18 by 18 by 24, brand new from mm-hmm. uh, the sister store to the one I used to work at. So basically, I drove to Virginia to visit my brother for a weekend, went over to this store, uh, they're already cheaper than anywhere else you can buy them brand new here. And then, of course, the lady knows me from working at the other store for so long, so she gave me a little bit of a discount. So <laughs> I was able to get nice. them a pretty good price. <laughs> but I had to drive all the way to Virginia and then drive them back <clears throat> to get them. Yeah. Yeah, a couple of the enclosures, like the big expensive ones I've got, I picked those up at NARBC. And I'll usually like wait toward the towards the end of the last day. You know, most people are packing up and filling out, and, and you sometimes you get some pretty good deals there just because they don't want to haul it, oh, yeah. you know, two states away. They're like, all right, yeah, we'll sell you that a uh, little above cost. <laughs> so, yeah, I was yeah, looking for a deal. At, at, yeah, last year at uh, Tinley in October, I got a, a small one, I think a 12 by 12 by 18 from Pangea for like 49 bucks. It's pretty good. You know? Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, with, uh, the reason that I, I really was attracted to keeping crested geckos is because, you know, I've got a lot of tarantulas, but they are probably some of the easiest animals to take care of. You know, like you, you don't got to feed them that often. They don't have any, you know, it, it essentially room temperature, you know, the basic normal humidity. I mean, there are some species that you need to be a little more dry or need to be a little more moist. Um, but for the most part, yeah, if you're comfortable, your tarantulas are comfortable. So it's, they're very low maintenance pets. And I really like frogs. I really like reptiles. And I wanted to kind of get into some of those, but I, I was, I didn't want to take on something like a chameleon that was going to be high maintenance and had to monitor her multiple times a day. So we, you know, we started out with a couple of king snakes and those things have been. So, I mean, they're just really easy to take care of. You know, you feed them, clean up after them, check the temperatures, but, you know, they seem pretty happy. They've been thriving for the years that I've had them now. Uh, then my wife got a ball python, and that was a, that thing's a little bit more finicky. It sometimes it can be difficult to eat, especially like the first three or four months we had it. I was like, this thing's going to starve to death. And I'm, I'm freaking out, call, talking to ball python breeders every week, like, you know, trying to figure out if I need to start force feeding this thing or what the situation is there. And finally he, you know, he, he he's a monster now. I'll just eat whatever you put in front of him. So and we got through that. But, you know, I really wanted to get some geckos and Adam from Wicked's, Wicked, Wiccan's Wicked Reptiles had pretty much sold me on either the crested gecko or the Chinese cave gecko. And like, that's what I was looking at because, they, you know, they seemed like they would do really well. Um, and I just haven't been able to find a Chinese cave gecko anywhere. <laughs> Seems like anytime uh, somebody's like, well, I'll have one at this show. And then I show up and they're like, oh, we already sold out. And it's like, man, that figures. <laughs> uh, one day I will get one. But yeah, so the the crested gecko was, I don't know, they, they just look really cool, you know, so they, they got that going for them, but then they're really easy to take care of. Um, now, I am keeping mine in bioactive enclosures right now, and I, they are in, I'm trying to remember, I think I've got them in 12 by 12 by 18s, um, mm-hmm. but they're, you know, they're still kind of small, so, but when they're full grown, they'll need a larger enclosure, is that correct, or will they yeah, do well in I that? Would- if you're going to do exo, you're going to continue on with the exoterra. I would go with what like I have behind me. That's 18 by 18 by 24 for an mm-hmm. adult. That's usually what everybody's recommending nowadays. Can you go smaller? Yeah. Sure. I think they do make one that's like uh, 
that's just more tall than it is wide also. I don't remember the exact dimensions on it or what they call it from Exoterra. But um, if you got something with a little less floor space than that but a little bit more height, then you can mm-hmm. do that as well. That would be fine. Yeah. I've got a few. I think they're Zoomeds, but they're like 12 by 12 by 24 or something like that. They're, they're really tall. Maybe it's like 20 or 22, but they're much yeah. taller, but they're kind of more slender. Keep uh, a lot of some arboreal tarantulas and huntsman mm-hmm. spiders and stuff in those. Uh, but I've got my day gecko in an 18 by 18 by 24. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure they'll be around the same size because she's full grown. Now, one thing we were talking about breeding geckos and keeping the hatchlings and stuff. Um, now I was yeah. curious uh, when they, when you breed them, how many eggs do they actually lay? Generally two at a time. Um, two? you can get okay. one from time to time. But yeah, when you first pair your gecko, so how I do it typically is I'll pair early in the year. Uh, most people are pairing basically January 1st. I haven't done it that early myself yet. This year was about the earliest I've done it. I did it uh, uh, February 1st. Sorry, I lost my train of thought there. And uh, basically, I just leave my males with my females for about three or four weeks. So I'll take the males, I'll move them into the females cage. I find that that works a little bit better. Um, you know, she gets to stay in her established zone, you know, and he has to basically just work to win her over, which is usually not hard for crested geckos. You put them together, they're probably going to breed. Generally, I've heard okay. very few reports of, of, you know, having pairings just not work out. And they're not extraordinarily violent with one another to where they're hurting each other like some of the other species are. So, yeah, after about three or four weeks, I'll separate. And then usually within 25 or 30 days after that, I usually see my first clutch. Now, if it's an experienced female who's bred the, the, the year prior or, you know, the couple of years prior, usually those eggs will come out fertile right away. Sometimes with new females, it's the first year you're ever breeding them. You can expect mm-hmm. to get uh, an infertile clutch or maybe just a half fertile clutch for your first one. And then gotcha. every 30 days for, in my experience, without pairing again, seven or eight months, every 30 days or so, get a couple of eggs. It may taper off towards the end. You might still get two eggs at a time, but you might only get half fertile, or maybe you'll only get one egg that's fertile, you know, and, and just just the one, not not a, not a whole clutch. And yeah. And so then, when they you know, lay their eggs, are they uh, just dropping them from wherever they are, or are they like going down to the floor and burying them in the substrate? Or I mean, how does that work? Yeah, they like to bury their eggs. So for me, I like to keep my females on paper towels still. I know it sucks. I, I, at some point, I'll find a way to keep everything bioactive. To me, the idea of having to dig up an entire bioactive enclosure to find where my female laid her eggs is just daunting. Like, I don't want to do that. So I keep my females on paper towel substrate, and I keep a box in there for them to lay. I use basically like the oh, – I just knocked my microphone. I use basically like a uh, – a little uh, Gladware kind of like food container that's maybe about five inches deep. I cut a okay. nice little two-inch hole in the top, and I fill it with moistened cocoa fiber. And they pretty much go there instinctually, especially if they just mm-hmm. have a paper towel substrate. They're looking for somewhere that's going to be suitable for those eggs to, you know, they're thinking they're going to bury them and leave them, and that's where they're going to hatch. So they want somewhere that has the right humidity level for those eggs to be able to survive. So in those, in those lay, giving those lay boxes – it's easy. They, they just lay right in there. And usually I can tell when they've laid because they make a mess when they're digging. A bunch of the dirt comes out of the hole. <laughs> you know, so overnight they'll dig. I'll, I'll wake up in the morning. Everything will be patted down flat by the gecko, but there'll be dirt all over the enclosure from where they were kicking it out of the hole. 
I see. That's very interesting. So you you cohabitate the male and the female, but they're not a communal species. So you can't Just, like keep females together or males together or anything like that. I, I mean, can you? Do people do it? Are there people online constantly advocating for it? Absolutely. I don't think it's a good idea, though. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it, the cohabitation lasts, like I said, three or four weeks in the beginning of yeah. the season. And that's it. I take the male out, put him back in his own enclosure, and they don't see each other again until next year or whenever the next time I decide to breed them is. Um, whether or not a, you know, a couple of females will bother each other in enclosure depends on some things. I mean, if you're going to give them the right amount of space and you're going to actually be able to create different zones for them that are going to be able to be comfortable for them to spend their daytime and you know, nighttime hours in where they're not going to have to just compete over the best spot. You know what I mean? Because people mm-hmm. a lot of times who cohabitate or who try to cohabitate and they don't have a lot of experience with it will say, my geckos love each other. They lay on top of each other all day. And that's because that's the best spot in the enclosure for them. That's where they are the happiest. You know, the temperature's right. They're comfortable there. They feel secure. So they're going to lay on top of each other. So if you can give them a large enough enclosure and you can create multiple zones that will recreate that sort of same setting, you know, and you can find that they're not bothering each other. They're literally like there's one gecko back here and there's another gecko over here type of thing. Then I think you'll do okay. Yeah. Um, I never recommend it to people when I'm selling, you know, geckos to them. I never recommend to cohabitate. I don't even cohabitate babies. Some people will do that in the beginning. Some people will put a, a clutch mates together in a box for a period of time, but I don't do it. Um, I bred bearded dragons. That's how I got my start breeding. And if you keep them, you know, in 50, 60 quart tubs, you know, with their lighting over top in groups of more than three or four, they'll bite each other's toes and tails off. So I got, you know, oh, wow. hard lesson to not keep anything together that may possibly, you know, do damage to one another. So everybody yeah. gets their own box. Yeah, I see. Yeah, that's uh, that's one thing that's nice about the tarantula hobby is that it's pretty much understood nothing is communal with the exception of a few very specific species. Um, and sometimes even those species, people, there's some controversy. It's like, yeah, maybe they will live communally, but should they? <laughs> you know, it's that kind of thing. I, I find it fascinating, and I understand why people want to keep a lot of different species communally, but most tarantulas, you know, they're, you're not going to have them living communally for more than a week. Like, one will end up eating the other one. Like, it's just, that's how it works. You know, there's, there's a few species that, like, I've got one right off here to the side. My monocentropus balfouria. I got three or four of them living in there. And, yeah, they're doing, no, I'm sorry. I think in this one has five. And they're, they're doing great, you know. I, I see them share prey and stuff like that. But I know that most species won't do that. Um, and I got some leopard geckos. And when I first say you got a Petco, they've got a dozen or two leopard gecko, like baby ones, living in one enclosure. And I had done some, like, you know, research online. I mean, this is years and years ago. And it, it, there was, it seemed to be conflicting. Like some people are like, yes, they, you can keep them communally. Other people are like, no, they all need their, their separate enclosures. So initially I had them in like two geckos, leopard geckos, and like a 40 gallon breeder tank, you know, so they had plenty of room. They each had their own humid hides and, and stuff like that. I thought I was doing well, shared some pictures online and just got roasted, you know, by the leopard gecko community. Like you're abusing those geckos and all this kind of stuff. So I split them apart. Had them like that for a few years. Uh, and then like, you know, just like we're doing right now, just talking about them and sharing them. And then I kind of got roasted by the other side. Like you can keep them together. What are you talking about? That's amazing. Like they like that. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is here. They're, they're yeah. separate now. They're just going to stay separate. But you know, I like the idea of them 
but so, I don't remember who it was. I had somebody on the podcast and we were talking about, it was either reptiles or amphibians and the misconception people see these, these reptiles or amphibians like laying on top of each other and like, Oh, they're cuddling. And they were like, that's actually a show of dominance. Like that's a, that's an aggression when they're doing that kind of stuff. That, that means you probably should split them up. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's interesting uh, how the reptile community kind of has some factions, you know, it's like, you, you know, you're a terrible person. If you do this, you're a terrible person. If you tell people not to do this and it, it can be difficult to navigate as somebody that's uh, inexperienced in the community. So, uh, you know, how do you, as a business owner, uh, stay out of that kind of drama and, and infighting or can you? <laughs> yeah, I, I can. Um, I find it pretty easy to stay out of I used to have, I'll, I'll admit, I'm not a perfect human. I used to have a guilty pleasure before I started this whole thing of getting into it with people on Facebook. Like somebody would say something and I'd be like, well, that's not right. I'm just going to tell them that, it's, you know, what's right. And then it would turn into a thing. And I had fun with it. Now that I'm sort of in this, you know, and I'm in it, you know, with the express goal of, of you know, evolving this into something of a successful business, I don't get I really don't comment on anything. I'm in the Facebook groups. I still have a personal Facebook page. I obviously have a business Facebook page because, you know, that's where the majority of the people know me from and follow me. So, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's been the, the easiest so far to grow. Um, and I don't have a website or anything like that. So, yeah, I don't comment on things in Facebook groups uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, I don't want to get involved in an argument if somebody doesn't think that I'm right, you know. <laughs> Um, even though I don't generally offer my opinion unless I'm fairly confident. That's just my policy on everything I, I talk about, whether it's reptile-related or anything-related. Um, mm -hmm. The other reason being that it's almost impossible to get uh, an answer in in a way that makes sense because there there seems to literally be people who live on Facebook to the extent that as soon as a post comes in, they're already typing. You know, They're already typing out their answer. And it's very likely that they're going to say the same thing you're going to say and, you know, if you're not, if you're not on it, like, then you can't add any valuable input because they've already, somebody's already answered the question 20 times over if you see it within five minutes. You know what I mean? That's what yeah. I find to be true with the Facebook groups. So I'm on the Facebook groups mostly just to kind of troll around and just, you know, I, I say troll, but that's a bad word. Uh, lurk. I, I like to call it lurking. Just lurk around, read people's posts. I can learn things sometimes that way. I can see what people are saying. I can also see some really cool animals and see what people are working with. So that's me. Yeah. I, I stay in the Facebook groups. Yeah. It could be a talk. Social media in general can be, and I'm, I'm learning that every day and <laughs> more and more. Yeah. How frustrating that can be. And, you know, even with my own Facebook group, I think we're somewhere around like 28,000 members right now. So, I mean, it's, it's massive and we've got maybe a dozen active moderators. So, I mean, they're getting hundreds of posts a day and they're trying to monitor what those posts say and then the comments underneath it. And it can get difficult and I'll have people send me emails or leave comments on videos and stuff talking about what an amazing, helpful resource the Facebook group is. But then other people are, you know, calling me a, a dictator and a fascist that's all about um, censorship and, and all this kind of stuff. And it's a, it's a horrible wasteland of trolls and idiots. And I'm like, how can two people be looking at the same thing and have such different opinions? It, it's just like, I don't know what the truth is. Like, I, I see what I see, uh, you know, and, and I try to do what I can, but 
a lot of that I, I just leave up to the moderators to to handle it's like that it's your old headache <laughs> i got other social media platforms to moderate and and you know so it it's frustrating because it's like you can get a lot of good information from social media but there's also a lot of negativity and and just bullshit in general and it, it's frustrating yeah uh, it, 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 i don't know it, it's a, it's a a blessing and a curse i guess but for a, a business, it seems like it's it's pretty necessary. You know, that's how you get your uh, your name out there and stuff like that, and, and can interact with people. Facebook in general, though, is really starting to target people like yourself. You know, people that are selling live animals. I mean, have you had any issues with Facebook trying to shut down your page or removing posts or anything like that? Yeah, no, I haven't because I'm careful. I don't really use. I do use. Okay, I'm going to say it online. It's going to be posted on some big YouTube channel, so they're going to hear it. <laughs> I have facilitated sales through Facebook, but I don't do it explicitly. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I don't really even post available animals like pictures. I don't have like an available album. I very rarely have shared like a Morph Market link or something like that just to say, oh, I have some things on Morph Market, you know, check it out. Um, only done that a couple of times and it really hasn't driven traffic. So I, I don't think it's a very good way, at least not with my Facebook page at the size that it is to do it. Mm-hmm. I mostly just have people contact me out of, on their own free will to ask me if I have anything available. And then in the private messaging, we'll go through what I have available and what the pricing is and, you know, what morphs they are, lineage. I'll go into long conversations with people. I'll even send, you know, my phone number. It's on, my phone number's on there, but I'll send it, you know, because sometimes I'm 35 years old. I'm from the pre-text era. I didn't grow up with a cell phone. Sometimes I don't like text and all that crap. I just want to talk to yeah. you. You know what I mean? <laughs> so sometimes you are I'll be an like, old can man. we just call it? Yeah, can we just call each other? You know what I mean? Because <laughs> I'd rather just say this than text it all to you. It's a lot of typing, and my fingers don't hit the buttons right. I sound like a really old man right now. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, yeah, I do totally. So that being said, I, I've not had any trouble with Facebook at all. I've heard of some other people, some friends of mine who you know I've met through this and at reptile shows. Or I say this, you know, our podcast uh, mm-hmm. had their Instagrams shut down. And they would run like live auctions and stuff on Instagram. And it's not against policy to do that, especially since they're like a, you know, a a legitimate LLC and everything else. So I don't, I don't know why it got shut down. It did end up getting uh, reactivated and they got their followers and all that stuff. So that was good. But yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's, it's owned by Facebook. So uh, I don't know why it wouldn't be uh, against policy to do animal sales on Instagram. If it's against it on Instagram, even or on Facebook, even though Instagram and Facebook are one and the same, essentially, mm-hmm. yeah, it can be confusing. Uh, my Facebook group got shut down last week for a couple, like a day. Uh, they were, you know, and they cited live animal sales, and it was like, but we don't like that's one of our explicit rules. The moderators don't allow posts to do that, but apparently, some people would make a post and we would approve it. And then a couple hours, they go back and edit the post to a live animal sale post, or they would be doing it in the comments. So Facebook was essentially like, like we appealed it and they reinstated the group, but then we're like, you've got X amount of days to clean up, you know, and remove any live animal comments or posts for the past 90 days, or we're going to delete it permanently. And I mean, and that's like <laughs> taking years to build this to the point it is now. And it's just going to be gone in an instant because some jerk is trying to spam his business and sell some animals. Uh, 
you know, it for, and, and not paying for advertising or anything. Just like, I'm just going to destroy what you've built so I can make, get a sale or two. And I've, I've had yeah. the same experience that, you know, you have like that group has 28,000 people. I think my like Facebook page has 10 or 12,000 followers and I can share a YouTube video on there and then look at my YouTube analytics like a week later and it'll be like 2% of the views, you know, came from outside of, of YouTube, uh, you know, and, and I'll look through and it's like, well, so like a, a fraction of that percent was from Facebook and a fraction of that percent was from your YouTube, you know, group or your Facebook group. And it's like, so this video, you know, me posting it and all of these Facebook groups added maybe 20 extra views or a hundred views. Like, you know, probably if they hadn't seen it in that group and clicked it, they would have come across it on Facebook or on uh, YouTube or Instagram or something anyways. So it's like, why am I even putting the effort in to maintain and grow these platforms if there's really no return on the investment? I mean, other than the fact that it's a community, you know, like that's pretty much the only reason I do it is, is it's a community of people that want to share their photos and, and experiences and stuff. So I mean, that's why I keep it going, but it's like, it's like at a cost uh, both time and money and yeah. with no return. <laughs> so it's, it, it can sometimes get a little frustrating, but that is the nature of social media, but even your private messages. And, and I don't know this officially, but I can't remember if I read it somewhere or heard it on another podcast or something, but uh, you know, Facebook is now monitoring private messages. So even if you bring sales posts into private messages, they could still shut you down. We'll see. Mm. I mean, so far so good. Um, those messages are, you know, usually they're instigated by the person. I'll usually get a, a notification that they're like, they're just like, hi, do you have any crested geckos available? You know, and I'll just mm-hmm. be like, yeah, I have this many. These are the, the, the morphs that I have. You know, the prices vary depending on which one. I can send you some photos and some other information. We usually just go through the whole thing. Yeah. So far, so good. Haven't been shut down by Facebook. Um, could it happen? Yeah, it could. Do I want to get off it, you know, and, and maybe try to do a website? Sure, I, I do. I just haven't gotten around to it. You know what I mean? And I mm-hmm. and honestly, I'm such a small operation that like I feel like having a website would just cost me more than I'll ever make, you know, in a season given what I'm working with right now. Um, just yeah. because I I may not have enough inventory to even fill up the website. It would just be like, come to my website. Hi, I'm right. I breed crested geckos. Here's my some of my breeders. Here's some of the stuff I've produced. Oh yeah, I don't have anything available. <laughs> you know, what I mean? <laughs> right now. <laughs> I, there's there's a lot of websites like that out there. There's some tarantula there websites you go to, and they've got like a hundred listings, but they're all out of stock, and they've got like one thing yeah. in stock. It's like, how is this? But that was actually kind of where I was trying to steer the conversation. Um, is, is you were talking about when you breed the gecko, it only has an egg or two that it drops that's fertile. But then it, it does that over, you know, months. So there'll be, there'll be multiple eggs. So in one year, uh, we'll say like, or one season, however you kind of differentiate that. How many like hatchlings do you get from one female? From one female? Yeah. Uh, let's say she lays her first clutch around, uh, you know, the beginning or the middle of March. And mm-hmm. then she's going to lay another one, April, May. June, July, August, September, October. I don't know, probably somewhere north of 20. 
eggs. Uh, okay. you know, for me anyway, it's, it's not a ton just from one female. Um, you could see how some of these guys who have hundreds of geckos and are breeding, you know, dozens of pairs are getting so many babies. But for me, I've grown to the point this season where I've just bred three pairs of crested geckos. <laughs> That's it. So you've got, you got three females that you're breeding, you're dropping that, eggs. That, yep. That are breeding and dropping eggs. Okay. I, I, I paired different males to all of them this year. Um, you know, just pick them based on what I think will work. Um, and we can get into crested gecko genetics if you'd like. We don't have to tangent right now, but yeah. No, uh, <laughs> please no. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not as well understood as some other areas. Um, so yeah, yeah I mean, I'm going to get, uh, you know, probably 40 to 60 babies this year, maybe if I'm lucky. Yeah. When people talk about uh, like ball python genetics and morphs, I f- after like sixty seconds, I feel like I'm in high school science class again. I'm like totally. Like, <laughs> it's just, really, does it look cool? That's what I care about. Luckily, but, uh, in crested geckos, there's not as many understood Mendelian genetic, you know, morphs mm-hmm. as there are in ball pythons. So most of our stuff is lineage driven and just basically paint job driven you know what what they look like does this gecko do you think it's going to look good with that gecko you know and yeah is there strong lineage there do they come from a good background do the parents also look like that type of stuff and you know mm-hmm. it's a structure thing it's a color thing and there's a lot of pot what we call polymorphism so you could breed you know two geckos that look fairly similar together and you might get a couple of babies that season that don't look anything like the parents it happens interesting yeah yeah, that's like as a novice uh, outsider, you know, I had the image in my head of what a crested gecko looked like. And it's probably because coming from the invert hobby, like, you know what this species of tarantula looks like. They all pretty much look that way. You know, they, there may be some difference, difference between like the males and females once they mature, uh, you know, because some of them are uh, dimorphic, you know, sexually dimorphic or whatever. But um yeah. So like I, I saw the geckos and I was like, that's really cool. But then as I'm like walking around, really getting into it, looking at Instagrams and YouTube videos and stuff, I'm just like, there's a lot of different colors and patterns to this, these crested geckos. Like it's, it's pretty amazing. And the price difference, uh, well, before we get to that, like I want to talk about how you determine price and stuff, but before we, I don't want to, I, I want to stay on this topic just for a second. Um, so you, 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 you have your three females, they're dropping their eggs. Uh, what is the viability of those eggs? Like, is it a hundred percent of the eggs that are fertile survive to, uh, to like the age where you can sell them? Or is it like, cause you know, in the wild, not you typically, at least I'm speaking from my experience with tarantulas, you know, they, they have a yeah. thousand eggs, you know, in their egg sac in nature, you know, potentially 10% might survive. If that, you know, a lot of them are going to die or get eaten in the egg sac. And then once they get out, they're going to become food for birds and frogs and small, you know, when they're tiny slings. So by the time they reach adulthood, it is a fraction of the amount. Uh, and sometimes that carries over to uh, captivity, you know, like somebody will have an egg sac, they'll have 200 eggs. But when it gets to the, like the size where you could actually sell them as spiderlings, you know, they may have lost 15 or 20%. So it, does that happen in in the gecko hobby as well yeah for sure i mean there is some loss whether it's uh after the fact um i've had very few that have passed for some reason after hatching successfully maybe two in the last few years one of which uh got basically choked on incubation substrate which is really awful um and the other was 
accidentally closed in a lid, which was 100% my fault, and I beat myself up for it for such a long time. Uh, that's the that's the peril of using lids. A lot of guys who use these these shoe boxes, like I do, use snake racks, so there's no lids. They basically just pull out the thing. A uh, lot less chance of closing. So now I'm extra careful. I make sure there's no feet, no tails in the lids. Uh, but when it comes to the eggs, that's where you can get your loss a little bit higher percentage. It's still not that okay. bad. Um, most of your fertile eggs will hatch successfully, but I've had a handful that you know died trying to hatch. You know, maybe their, mm. their egg tooth slit the egg and they couldn't figure out, to, they couldn't find the hole and they just drowned in the egg. That has happened. Um, interestingly enough, I had a, a conjoined twin that didn't fully hatch. Um, it just basically cut a slit in the egg and I waited like three days and nothing happened. So I cut it open and there was a conjo- partially formed, you know, conjoined twin in there, which is pretty oh, crazy. Oh, wow. Um, and sometimes, you know, you may just get your substrate, your incubation substrate a little bit wrong and, you know, there's a little too much moisture and that's usually something, you know, a mistake that a novice uh, breeder will make um, and you'll have, you know, a, an egg mold over or something like that. You know, it'll, it'll just get too much moisture and it'll, it'll mold over. I'm sorry. There's literally a fly. Yeah. I, you're going to edit this. So there's literally a fly <laughs> just like <laughs> flying around in front of my it's getting ready to fly in front of my camera. I know it's going to be seen. I'm sorry about that. That's, I'm not going to edit that out. That's funny. I'm leaving it in. Okay. <laughs> I had one earlier. I had a little fruit fly going around. Yeah. I'm like looking at the screen. I'm like, you can't see it. It's so small, but my eyes are probably crossing looking at this thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. I was like, I was looking at it hard while I was trying to finish answering that question because it just kept landing right above my camera. I was yeah. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah, I don't want to like but be yeah. swatting at it. People are like, well, you're going to think did. I'm trying to I, signal you or something. Uh, yep. <laughs> but I, I know I if it doesn't I, go away, it's going up my nose because they love going up my nose. <laughs> I also have a yeah, very that, big nose. That's something that the, you know, the people outside the exotic animal hobby maybe don't understand either is the fruit flies are a real thing that you just, oh, yeah. with, you know, I've heard of the machines like the, the something called the catchy. I don't know if you've ever oh, tried it. I've got, I've heard it. two different models down here. They work yeah. amazing. Like I have the original model. It was black. Yeah. It has this like little white cone that when it, the lights turn off, it automatically turns on and it just has like this little black light in there that kind of emits yeah. that UV light and they get drawn to it. And then the fan just sucks them down onto a sticky pad. And I was like, this thing is amazing. So I had one, yeah. You know, down here to, you know, because I'm feeding dart frogs and stuff. And sometimes those fruitless, flightless fruit flies start flying. <laughs> so, you know, I'm yeah. like, uh, uh, so it takes care of those, any fungus gnats or anything like that that get down here. But also, like, I mean, we live, uh, you know, northern West Virginia, right by a creek. So sometimes, and, you know, we're in a floodplain. So sometimes, like, the flies get real bad. So I have one upstairs in the kitchen, too, for the spring and summer. But then Ketchy just came out with a new one. I'm actually thinking about making a video on it. Um, I would grab it right now, but this is a podcast and most people are just oh, yeah, listening. Sure. They'd be like, they wouldn't see it. But it's cool because instead of having like the cone little LED black light in the center, it's a it's a bar, that like a circle bar that goes all the way around the outside that has those LED lights in them. So it, it's a lot more attractive. And then in the center... Uh, so it still has the fan and everything. So they get attracted to the light and they get sucked down into the fan onto a sticky pad. But in the center, they also have a second stage, a second trap. It's like a oh, little wow. ball with like holes in the top of it. And you just fill it with a little bit of uh, apple cider vinegar and water or uh, apple cider vinegar and Dawn, I think is what it said to use. Dawn, so yeah. they'll be attracted to that as well. And so it's like two levels of killing fruit flies. And since I got that up and running, 
Uh, with the exception of that little one that was just buzzing around, <laughs> I haven't had any issues with them. So, I mean, that, that thing's nice. a, a beast. I highly suggest those. Yeah, I've been thinking about trying it because it, it, it creeps up every year. You know, it'll go away mm-hmm. eventually. But especially, I think, with, you know, being that I feed a lot of the Pangea, which is it's basically like fruit fly food, you know, yeah. they, they could live on it, honestly. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, I get them bad sometimes. And we've tried, you know, little traps with, uh, the apple cider vinegar and the dawn, and that does work. It attracts them, but I can't imagine mm-hmm. it would attract them as well as something with, you know, an ultraviolet light or something like that. Yeah. 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 That thing is, uh, yeah. and, and like, I'll, I won't even realize we'll have a lot of them. Uh, and then I'll check that little sticky pad. I'm like, wow, I murdered like a hundred fruit flies, <laughs> you know, like they're, they're pretty tricky. Sometimes I'm editing videos late at night. It's like all the lights are off down here except for the computer monitors. And then I'll see them because they'll be attracted to that light. And I'm yeah. trying to edit a video and there's a little tiny fly crawling across there. I'm like, oh, <laughs> this is, I got to turn the catchy on. This thing is, is getting out of hand, but I didn't have near the problem until I got. Uh, well, actually, it was the day gecko first, and now the crested geckos. So now I have that Pangea. Uh, I think that's what I use. Yeah, I, I, and I've I've tried different, and that that I want to talk to you about that as well too. So I'm gonna I'm gonna write this down. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, having that that fruit mixed stuff just sitting out seems to really attract the fruit flies. So you know, I, I, the catchy is is pretty much indispensable now. Um, yeah. So while 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 it's fresh in the mind. Um, I'm, u- I, I'm using my, like my day gecko has always enjoyed, uh, I don't, I, I'm really bad. I don't remember the name of the brand. I know it Is was it the Rapashi? Pangea. Uh, no, it was, uh, the, I think it was the Pangea. It was the red bag, uh, of okay. like yeah. gecko mix, you know, mix it to yeah. one, one scoop of the mix and then two parts water. And it was enjoying that. And I got that gecko from you and I picked up another one at the show. I brought them home and those geckos would not touch it. So I was really? like, oh crap. Yeah, they, they didn't like that one. So I, I went to go, like, maybe I'll try something else. Cause I, I knew that you had mentioned there were other flavors. So I get on, on the internet and I'm looking and there's papaya, there's watermelon. There, you know, there's like all these different things. There was one that was, uh, it was a gray bag for growers and breeders or something like that. So I, yep. I, I got that. I got the watermelon. I got the papaya, I think. Uh, I don't remember. I've got three different bags now. So I'm like kind of mixing and matching, trying to figure out what it is they like. Um, is that bad? Like, is that is that going to be harmful? Or do I need to like pick a flavor and stick with it? No. Yeah, no, it's totally good. I mean, if you're feeding, you know, if most of your diet is the crested gecko diet and, you know, you have a limited amount of insects going into the diet, then varying the flavors... I think is a good thing as long as they respond well to it um, and they, they eat, you know, varying flavors because it's just like anything. You want to give them some variety in their diet. Essentially, it's the same amount of nutrition. Just, you know, maybe they're enjoying themselves a little bit more, not to anthropomorphize, but they obviously can taste and they have a preference. So to mix up mm-hmm. the foods is definitely not a bad thing. I generally stick with mostly a base of the red bag. I, I call it the fruit mix with insects. It's like their original flavor, basically. It doesn't necessarily have a given flavor. It's just the red bag. <laughs> yeah. I stick with that, and I and I, I mix in a something else, whatever other flavor I have on hand. I, I have bought the papaya. I've bought the watermelon and had absolutely no luck getting anything to eat watermelon. But I, like I said before, I'm in the Facebook groups, and I see that a ton of people – like their geckos just go for it like crack, you know, they, they love the watermelon, but I don't have that experience with mine. Um, so I don't really buy that one. I do buy the breeder and growth formula, both because it's good to supplement, you know, your feet with your females during the breeding season. Cause there's a little extra calcium in there already. Also, I have 
a female gecko that that's the only flavor she'll eat. So I have to mix her balls separately. I can't even make her food in the big squeeze bottle that I make everybody's food in. I have to make her bowl by itself because the only food she'll touch, she won't touch anything else. Um, and yeah, it's weird. I find that I tell people when I sell them geckos, like it shows, you know, that this is what I do. This is the flavor I use. This is mm-hmm. how many bugs I feed or so, or this one just won't eat bugs. It doesn't seem to have a preference for it. And everything changes when they get to the new place. Uh, they have a different <laughs> preference. And, and I think that speaks volumes to just the different type of environment that they're in, whether your room, you know, is just a different temperature and humidity overall than, than mine or your light cycle is just a little bit more structured. I think any yeah. of those things can change the way that they respond to food. You know what I mean? Huh. Yeah. Like I sell, I sell and breed gargoyle geckos as well on a small level. I'm trying to grow those projects, but I, I sold one to a buddy at a, the last reptile show we had, and I told him, I said, I can't get my baby gargoyles to eat bugs. They just won't do it. They slam Pangea. Hmm. They eat a lot, and there's bugs in the Pangea, so I'm sure they're going to, you know, they grow fine, and they're getting what they need. Yeah. A week later, he's like, I'm really liking this gargoyle, man. I got it to eat six mealworms. I was like, how? <laughs> you know? <laughs> okay. Wow. That's good. I mean, I'm glad, but how did you do it? So yeah. that'd be something that I'm not doing, maybe that's maybe not getting them to eat bugs. I don't know. It's all hmm. a learning curve. It's a process. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. The uh, yeah. the the gecko I got from you, it uh, it seems to be doing well. Uh, yeah. I'll powder some crickets, drop them in there, watch him hunt them down. He seems to really enjoy that. But like the Pangea, like sometimes I wonder if he is even touching it. You know, like I'll put it in there uh, towards the evening. And then usually, like, I, I feed the gecko right after dinner. Like, I'll eat. I'll come down here, like, 7, 7.30. You know, my lights are starting to dim down here. So I'm like, oh, wait, we're approaching the <laughs> uh, thick, what's the right word for that? The, uh, I wanted to say facsimile, but I don't think that's the right one. <laughs> the fake dusk time. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, I mean, I have all of my lights on timers. So, you know, uh, they'll start turning off. At, at certain times. So like the ambient brightness of the room just slowly, you know, between seven and nine, you know, is, is kind of when it just starts getting darker down in here. Um, yeah. And the same thing in the morning. So that's then I'll bring, come down and I'll feed them. Uh, I'll usually like, you know, be down here maybe around nine, nine thirty, ten o'clock kind of doing my rounds. Like a, I feel like a jailer. I just, before I turn in for the night or, you know, sit on the couch and watch TV, I just kind of walk around, make sure everybody's doing okay. Water dishes are filled and mainly to make sure the doors are shut. The lids are shut. Cause sometimes, especially when I'm feeding a hundred tarantulas, I might forget to latch one. You know, that happened to my day gecko the other day. I had, uh, I put, I had put the food in there, you know, after dinner. So it was like seven, seven thirty. Came back down at 9.30 and realized I didn't lock the Exoterra back. So as it was like running around its enclosure or whatever, it had pushed the door open slightly and wandered out with sitting on top of the enclosure. And I'm like, oh. all right, you are fast. How am I going to do this? Yeah. <laughs> but was a, you know, I got a couple of big cups and was able to corral it, put it back in there with no problem. But I was, you know, I was like, this is why I have to check every night because sometimes you, you do something mindless and forget to latch a door. Um, but my day gecko, I mean, she'll, she'll eat crickets, she'll eat, uh, mealworms, she'll eat roaches, she'll eat whatever Pangea for the most part I put in there. She doesn't seem to be enjoying that, that breeder growth thing at all, but she like, she doesn't touch it. But my, I guess what, why I'm bringing this up is I'm wondering if maybe what I'm doing wrong is I'm offering them too much food and they're eating. They're just, a, it's just a small amount. Like what is a, a good amount for, you know, a young gecko. 
Yeah, it's a real common thing with a new uh, crested gecko owner uh, to feed more food than they're capable of eating in a period. You know, usually I, I recommend with a gecko that size to definitely feed every other day, you know, offer a new bowl of food. Yeah, he's so tiny. Is and I say he, I don't know if it's a male or female, but it's so tiny and it's got such a small stomach that it's not taking in nearly what you're putting in the bowl. Um, usually for a gecko that size, I try not to put more than a dollop in there that's like bigger than a dime, if that makes sense. Holy you know, crap! I, right. So because then you know <laughs> if they eat part of that, then I can usually tell. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they're not probably going to eat all of it. So if you're if you're using let's say like I use the half ounce cups the little cups that yeah. you can buy from like Pangea or you can get them from the Webstrant store or whatever, uh, right. they uh, those get filled for adults, and then for for babies and juveniles you know if it's a if it's a grow out like a you know, fifteen to twenty gram gecko, I'll fill just you know the bottom part of the cup and then the babies will just get that little dime sized part, and a lot of times I'll put more than I'm into in there and sometimes it's harder to tell. Uh, whether they ate, but the smaller amount of food you give a gecko that size, the more likely you're going to be able to tell that it's eating. And you know, mm. it's eating the, uh, you know, it's eating the crickets because you see that happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have a bioactive enclosure, so it might be a little harder to tell if it's pooping unless it's doing it on the glass, but I, you're good. The gecko is probably eating Pangea. I almost guarantee you it is. Especially at this point, you've had it for a while. It may go off Pangea for a little while when you first bring it home. That's another common thing that happens, and I get that a lot. Like, I'll go to a show. I try to put that in what I say to people at a show. I try to remember to tell them that sometimes just the stress of me bringing it to the show and then you taking it home in a deli cup and then setting it up in a whole new thing can slow down a feeding schedule for as much as a week or even a week and a half or two weeks. You might not see as much eating. Um and, you know, it never fails. I'll, I'll forget to tell somebody and I'll get a message. Who <laughs> hasn't eaten anything? I'll be like, it's oh, going to wow. eat. Just, just leave it alone. It's going to eat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that must – I'm also using – I mean, it's like, you know, ha, I don't even – I think it's the half ounce uh, plastic deli cups. It's got a little feeder up there towards the top. Mm-hmm. And um, – but I'm using like a half teaspoon scoop and then – Two things of water, so it's almost completely full, maybe like three quarters yeah. of the way full. It's probably eating um, Pangea, but you'll never be able to tell. Yeah, I'm yeah, feeding it way too much. much. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I'll I mean, do that for my day for gecko. The- She's full grown, and, and I'll come back the next day, and it's almost all gone. It's like, yeah. but yeah. So yeah, I, and you said you use a squirt bottle. Like, can you explain that to me? That sounds like a really yeah, good idea. So if you like go to a uh, like a diner and they have like a refillable like ketchup and mustard bottle that sits on the you know the table, the clear right. bottle with a little yeah, I use one of those. I'm at the level finally now where I have enough geckos where it makes sense to use one of those. <laughs> Up until like the last year or so, I've I've just made everybody's bowls individually because it just mm-hmm. made more sense. Like, but now you know I have a bottle that's you know yay tall and I fill it up. Uh, you know, maybe about two and a half to three inches, and that's enough food to feed all my geckos. So basically, I just put the food in there through a funnel, put the appropriate amount of water in there, and I'll be honest, I don't measure anymore. I just eyeball it because I just know what I what to expect. And if I have to add mm-hmm. more water, I can, and then I just shake it up until it's the consistency I want, and then I can just go in all the cups. Yeah, I've got some little ones of those. I might have. I might try that out because I've just been doing like meal prep. Like that's part of my Sunday ritual is I'll I'll make up. You know, uh, 21 little half ounce cups, put the lids on them and stick them in the fridge. Then at night I can just pull them out and drop them in there and, and good to go. And, you know, like I said, my day gecko is, is digs it, but you know, the, the little ones have, 
I've been concerned. Uh, but it wasn't until talking to you that I was like, maybe I'm just feeding them way too much and they're eating, but I just can't tell because they're eating like a quarter or a tenth of what I'm putting in there. So I, I would bet that yeah. that's what it is. Um, if you're getting a strong feeding response with crickets, then that means they're, you know, they're comfortable. They've adapted to their new home. They're doing fine. You know, they're, they're not yeah. stressed or anything like that. So are they eating Pangea? Almost definitely. They're just not eating nearly enough for you to be able to tell. And gotcha. when they're adult size, the full bowl is fine. And they'll probably eat most of it. Yeah. And I also provide them with a water dish. So like up on that little ledge, they've got a food dish and a water dish. But I've never seen them drink the water. Like when the mister kicks on, they'll, they, they'll lick the droplets off the side of the glass. So I'm like, do I even need the water dish? But it just seems wrong to not include it. <laughs> I include water dishes for every single one of my geckos. Um, I've mm-hmm. only ever seen one gecko in my collection drink from a water dish i don't know that if that means that nobody else does but i think it's better to have it than not um yeah. as long as you're changing it regularly and keeping it clean which i know you are um that's only time water dishes can become problematic is if you leave them you know to get bacteria and stuff for too long and don't change them regularly because then if they yeah. drink from it then that's a problem mm. yeah yeah it's uh it's, it's a lot like a lot of people don't use water dishes for tarantulas because they're like, I've never seen it drink. And it's like, you know, they do a lot of stuff while we're sleeping like that. They're, they're nocturnal. So they could be, they, they could enjoy a drink of water around four o'clock in the morning. You're dead asleep. So you never see it. So you assume they do nothing but fill it up with dirt. Uh, but, you know, I, that's why anytime I see a tarantula drinking from a water dish, I try to record it or take pictures of it and post it. Like, see, they, they do. They do drink out of water dishes. <laughs> Uh, you know, so it's, I feel for me, it's important to provide. I understand other people don't and you know, that that's their business. Uh, but I, I like providing water dishes for them and you know, I got to do it for the snakes and stuff anyways. So it's like, what's a couple more water dishes for the geckos or for their tarantulas. It's not, not that big of a deal. Um, and it just, everything needs water. So, but I'm, I'm no expert when it comes to reptiles. Um, so since you're here, I'm just going to kind of tell you a little bit more about my enclosure and, and let me know if I'm missing something or am going overboard. Uh, because it is a bioactive enclosure, I, you know, I've got these plants in there. So I have like a, an LED light, uh, like a grow light. So, you know, it, it comes on same time as everything else. So it's got like the day-night cycle. But I was really confused about the UVB aspect. Uh, doing my research, some people were saying they don't need it because they're nocturnal. Other people saying, yes, they're nocturnal, but they still would, res- they're up in the dusk and then they go to bed in the dawn. So they are getting some UVB light. So I got like a little fluorescent UVB light that's, you know, over part of their enclosure. Um, so as a, as a gecko keeper, breeder, I mean, do you feel they, they need UVB light or is it is that just a waste of money? I don't think it's a waste of money. I think we're moving towards a place, the hobby, where we're finding that providing UVA, UVB lighting to animals that we didn't in the past it definitely doesn't hurt. And it can also possibly have some benefits. Um, I think that the main thing is uh, – you don't actually need it with these particular species that we're talking about, crested geckos, gargoyle geckos, you know, any of these nocturnal species. You don't need it to be successful. I think we've pretty much proven that over the years of keeping them without it, that you can have a healthy gecko, you know, and 
you can breed and, and successfully keep these things without UV, UV lighting. I mean, you see there's bright lights on these tanks back here, but those are just LED lights, um, mm -hmm. you know, to brighten up the tank during the day and to grow the couple of live plants that I have in there. Um, yeah. so yeah, I don't, I don't use it. Um, I dust with calcium and vitamin D3 on my insects, uh, periodically. And then there's a, a large, there's a, a normal dose of calcium in the Pangea crested gecko diet already, you know, that they get. And I, you know, people have been having success like that for years. Um, okay. have I thought about using UVB for geckos? Absolutely. Um, it's definitely something I'd like to try at some point. Uh, it's just a matter of, you know, the logistics of delivering it to the geckos that don't necessarily live in habitats like this. You know what I mean? I live, they live in yeah. tubs with, with plastic lids on them. So it's not really easy to get ultraviolet to them. Um, but gotcha. I've, I've seen no issue with not having it. The fact that you put it on there will be totally fine. It will not be detrimental to the animal whatsoever. Um, the question that I would, the, that I would pose is whether or not it's getting much from it because those things have a limited range for how much output, how much UV output they are producing, like yeah. in distance from the bulb. How much time mm -hmm. is the gecko spending at the right distance from the bulb? Is it really getting anything from it? Or is it, in, in, as you said, kind of a waste because maybe it's not yeah. getting anything from it. So that would be a behavioral thing that you would have to sort of observe and watch. You have to figure out what the what the actual effective distance from your bulb is, see if the gecko's actually right. spending time there to figure out if it's really getting anything from it. Because if it's spending time, yeah. you know, eight or nine inches away from the bulb and it's never going really close to the bulb when it's on during the day, then it's probably not getting much at all. Yeah. Yeah, that's when I, I designed their enclosure. Um, I pretty much modeled it after, which is maybe not a great idea, but my day gecko enclosure, because I spent a lot of time researching her and figuring it out. And I knew where the UVB light would be placed. So I made sure I had kind of like a back, a basking branch right underneath it, like within just a few inches so that it would be getting a lot of that UVB and, and she uses the heck out of it. You know, she'll, she'll be either under the heat, like the, the, the basking spot for the, for the, the, the deep heat emitter thing, or she'll be over by the UVB hanging out. Um, so I did something similar when I uh, was building their enclosure is that, you know, I made sure that there was a, a kind of a cross piece of, of wood up top directly below the light. So they would be within that range. And it's only been, you know, what is it? That was like a month ago, six weeks ago. So, I mean, Something I don't like have that. a lot of time, but I have yet to see either one of them go underneath that. Like the yeah. the little one that I, I adopted hangs out like behind all these plant leaves and stuff. So it's like completely in the dark for the most part during the day. Um, the one I got from you, like even right now, I've got like a little mister nozzle, like hooked up to my misting system that will spray, you know, a little bit of moisture in there twice a day for a couple seconds. And that's where he likes to hang out. So it's like right. you've got all these cool yeah. branches and plants and, and you 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 like to perch on this on the damn misting nozzle, knock it out of yeah. alignment. Uh, there's no telling why they make the decisions they do. <laughs> yeah. where they I mean he's stay. like watching me right now. He he's might be asleep. Just but perched up there looking at you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nosy that's little funny. creator. Um yeah. But that was that was actually going to be my next question is I've got them hooked up to my misting system. Is that necessary or is or am I going to have too much humidity in there? No, like what's a good humidity for, for crested geckos? 
So you do want a cycle of humidity for them. You don't want them to be humid all the time. And the way you keep them, you know, sort of dictates the way you're going to mist. I don't have misting systems currently, so everything I do is manually misted. Um, but in a bioactive enclosure like this one behind me, I miss these fairly regularly. They're definitely misted every day. Sometimes I'll miss them in the middle of the day and then at the end of the day, um, just depending. I don't actually currently have <laughs> – it sounds awful being, you know, oh, I'm a breeder. I don't have any <laughs> hygrometers in any of my cages right now. Um, I used, yeah. I've put some in there in the past, and I've monitored just to see what happens. But like in mm -hmm. my tub enclosures, I can miss those – um, if they're not ventilated with screens, with like two-inch holes with screens in them, I can mist those every other day. I can mist fairly heavily once every other day. The humidity will raise to a level of probably somewhere in the upper 70s or low 80s, and then it will slowly drop off, probably back down to what the ambient in my house is, which is, you know, 40s or 50s probably. And then when it comes to these enclosures, they, are ha they have such ventilation in the top. I know they have a lot of nice dirt that in sphagnum and stuff in the bottom that holds moisture, and they have that drainage layer. But there's so much ventilation in the top that they have to be misted every day to get that humidity to, to spike and fall the way it's supposed to. But that's what you want. Gotcha. You want a spike and a fall. You don't want constant humidity. Now, sometimes uh, it's a very common behavior I've seen in crested geckos over the years that when they have substrate, they will occasionally go down and bury themselves in substrate. So if you put some sort of an elevated or even just on the floor humid hide, you know, you've kept leopard geckos, so you're familiar with a humid hide, then they, they could probably benefit from that. So if, you know, if for some reason they start to go into a shed cycle and they're on that low end of the humidity spectrum at that moment and you don't know it, then they have a place they can go, you know, and get a little bit of extra moisture. Yeah. Yeah. One of them, but while I was, I had like in there, it's temporary enclosure while I was putting those together, making sure, you know, they, the plants had time to grow out and everything. I noticed it was it was doing that kind of burrowing underneath the moss. So in both yep. of these enclosures, I have like a, a corner where there's just a whole lot of moss, a little bit of an overhang of some cork bark and stuff. So it's a nice dark, damp spot. Yep. Um, thinking well, if he was utilizing, like pretty much making it out of what scraps were in this enclosure, I should build something like that for him. And uh, they haven't used it yet, but it, it is there, you know. And um, yeah. so you know, hopefully that if they need it, they'll be able to to take advantage of that. Uh, but yeah, with the the misting, I just don't like misting, like having that. Mm -hmm. Because if I go out of town or something like that, it, it's one thing to ask somebody to drop in a food dish for them. It's another thing to be like, hey, can you stop by twice a day and mist my reptiles? Because yeah. a lot of people, that, you know, they, they get pretty nervous about just opening up an enclosure for anything if they're not dealing with it a lot. So, and I, I just, I don't know, I've seen so many people say such great things about Mist King. Um and like that whole that whole situation that that's I was gonna go that route and I, I don't want to get into that whole story but it, it, I had something worked out I don't I don't know what happened but uh, I it, it fell through so I was like gonna have to pay full retail and I, I honestly it was it was like an idea um, there's a lot of people that are using Miss King they got a lot they say a lot of great things about it a lot of reviews and videos and stuff like that online I want to try something different just to see what so I, I tried out the uh, Exoterra Monsoon Two, because I had seen some mixed reviews on that, and I was like, "Well, we'll try this out." And I could get, I got one a good deal on one. And uh, initially, when I got it, I thought that I that I had, I don't know if if I read it on the box or online, or if just a person at the pet store, you know, a little 
private, you know, small business, if they just told me this, but I was under the impression that it would, uh, you could use up to 10 nozzles on it. So I was like, yeah, this is more than I need. So I, I got it. I hooked everything up, ended up like expanding for all of, all of my different reptiles and stuff. So everybody got a little bit of moisture during the day using 10 nozzles. And it was like, it, it actually can only use go up to six. <laughs> like oh. with 10 nozzles, <laughs> there was not enough pressure. So it's like the yeah. mist cycle would kick on and it was just like sputtering water. Like not even really misting. I was like, what is wrong? So I was like, maybe I should have gone with the Mist King uh, because that would have been a better investment. Uh, but I was like, but now I'm already like in the hole here. So I tried out and, and I couldn't buy, I was like, I'll buy another one. So I'll have two of them. And then like, for whatever reason, it, that's the frustrating thing with Exoterra and this Frog and Crow, Frog and Co line that they've come out with some really cool stuff in there. I like that volcanic substrate that they came out with. Uh, I've used that in a couple of enclosures. I, I thought it was really cool. Uh, the, the, the frog enclosures with the drainage built into the bottom is really cool, but you know, you can't buy them through from Exoterra directly. So you get a like triple L reptile or, you know, these mom and pop shops and stuff like that. They may have them in stock. They may not, you know, it's, 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 it's like they came up with a really great idea, put it out on the market and they just can't keep up with demand. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I've been getting frustrated. So I couldn't buy, uh, another monsoon. So I got some off-brand ripoff, like Reptazoo or something like that. And uh, amazingly, that one worked a whole lot better than the Exoterra one. It, it can go up to 10 uh, and and it, I can like adjust the amount of moisture. I was like, I was impressed with it. I was like, this is really cool. Um, it's just so loud. <laughs> like, that's the nice oh, thing okay. with the monsoon. <laughs> I can tell it's on, but it's just a, a very in the background. And that one kicks on and it's like, it's like an old car fired up, like a motorcycle, but it just blasts that moisture. And it's uh, so it's cool. So I got, I got kind of hooked up on two different cycles. So like the day geckos, I'm sorry, the, yeah, the day gecko and the dart frogs need more humidity. So they, they're hooked up on one system. And then like my snakes and crested geckos and stuff that don't require as much humidity, uh, as often, you know, they have them on that. So I could, I can adjust the settings and stuff, which is, which is kind of cool. But yeah, I, I don't think I could do this without a misting system. Oh, sure. Yeah, I don't know how you do that. Going, there's no way. I mean, I don't, it's not as much as it sounds like <laughs> really currently. <laughs> uh, that's just, that's the main reason I haven't gone to a misting system. Actually, I would say the main reason is, is I, I would probably want to go with something like a mist king and I have no room to like have a place, you know, with a large enough reservoir to make it make sense. You know what I mean? I don't have any yeah. place to put that system. Um, this system yeah. itself, the pump and the lines and all that doesn't take up space, but usually you want to have a decently sized reservoir of water so that you're not having to you refill all the time. And if you forget to refill, it's not going to dry up on you. You know, so mm -hmm. I would say I would ultimately probably want something larger than a five gallon bucket, which is about all I could figure out space to put it. <laughs> I am right. fresh out of space, man. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I mean, I'm, I feel that way. And I and I have a, a basement or half a basement, mm -hmm. but I have the finished side of the basement. And my wife keeps trying to push me over to the unfinished side. I'm like, no, there's no ceiling. It's just like rafters on the floor. And there's, right. it's a mess over there. And so I, I've been like actively searching for some commercial space, uh, like, you know, like an old retail shop or something I can go move into. Uh, but it's like finding something in my price range that isn't, you know, I got to find something that's cheap enough that I can afford it and it makes 
business sense is I don't want to spend every dollar I make just to have, you know, a storefront. Uh, but also something that is like, if you go really cheap, then you're, you, you're going to be dealing with roaches and mice and leaky roofs and no central air. And uh, you know what I mean? It's like all these other, these other issues. It's like, I, I don't want to deal with that. And it's like, I feel, I don't want like a storefront that has a lot of foot traffic. Like I don't want people to know where I am, you know, like I don't want walk-in gotcha. people trying to like think I'm a pet store and come in and see or some kind of private zoo. So I'm totally cool with it being like a door facing an alley in a residential <laughs> side of town or something. Like I don't care a secret little yeah. warehouse location or an office. And uh, it, yeah. it's so I found a couple. And then when I tell them what I'm doing, they're like, no, we really don't want yeah. uh, 200 spiders being moved into our, our location. So I'm like to the point where I am trying to convince my wife that maybe we should take out a mortgage on the house and then I use that money to buy some land and build a building. <laughs> yeah, But it, uh, it makes yeah. sense to me, but you put your house up, <laughs> you know, mortgage your house. You're, it's a risk. I don't want to lose yeah. my house. <laughs> I'd just but like yeah. to be able to buy a place in general, you know, that has a space similar to what you're working with. I feel like if, and I know you've, you told me this when you were on my podcast, that it doesn't matter what you get. Eventually you're going to feel like you need more <laughs> space. But uh, yeah. I feel like if I just had, you know, I don't know how big your space actually is. I just know from seeing it on your videos that if I had that, I could be good for like a while. I could grow I yeah. could do some different projects. You know, I could move into some things that I want to move into, but in all, yeah. all in good time, you know, all in good time. This was more than enough for many years. You know, I just had like a corner. I had one rack, like a bookshelf of tarantulas. But, and and that's something that I think is even more egregious when you're keeping reptiles. Uh, yeah, with tarantulas, it's like you start off with a little tiny, you know, box that the spiderlings in. But even the largest species, at most, your you know, ten, fifteen gallon terrarium is about as big as you'll ever need to get. Now with like snakes, you know, we got them young. We had them in a 20 gallon and I had to upgrade that to a 40 gallon and then had to upgrade that. to uh, I don't even know the, the four by two by two, four by four by two, whatever that enclosure is, you know, it's like thing is massive. And, uh, and I got a couple of those and it's like, yeah, that's, that's much larger. You know, it really starts eating up a lot of space and there's like still two more snakes growing out that eventually are probably going to need, you know, enclosures that large as well. And they're also expensive, you know, like it, those things can be, can be a pretty costly. Yeah, definitely. So I, I think that's something that is important to remind people that I don't think they do at pet stores. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's like you're buying this little baby, you know, milk snake or whatever. And right now it's good in a 10 gallon, but eventually that sucker is going to be four feet long. And you're going to need a nice large enclosure for it. So like, do you feel when you're selling geckos to people? Um, and like, like when I, when I met you at your table, you know, maybe you had 10, 12 geckos for sale. Is that, like is that, that fair? That was fair. Um, Probably maybe even a little bit less because I did actually sell some stuff at that show. So by the time you made nice. it around, some stuff was actually gone. So <laughs> okay. <laughs> but when you're selling them, they're they're typically. I mean, what do you call them in the gecko hobby? Are they like juveniles or uh, like what's the it terminology I mean, for not full grown? Yeah, I would call them juveniles. That's just what I refer to anything that's not a full grown, you know, gecko or. Sometimes I'll call them sub-adults if they're a little bit closer. You know, if you're working with a gecko that's like 20, 25 grams, I'd put that in the sub-adult category. Um, 
you know, I don't sell hatchlings per se. That's one thing mm-hmm. that I, I really try to, you know, when I, when I talk about ethics of selling animals, uh, not selling an animal too soon is really important. And it's something that people shouldn't do. I know that with slings and stuff, it's probably a little bit different with spiders. I don't know how long tarantula breeders keep slings before they let them go. But, you know, when I was breeding bearded dragons, I would keep them for four to six weeks. You know, at least yeah. usually by then they're well started. Those things grow so fast with geckos. It's a little different with these crested geckos. I found that for me, it works best to keep them for three or four months before I can, before I let them go. I want yeah. them to get to that four to five gram range. Ideally I have brought geckos to shows that are three and a half grams, but they are doing really well. They're eating a lot. They're eating constantly. You know, they're well started. I don't have to worry about that. Yeah. Unfortunately, I've seen at shows, I've seen some people with tables full or just handfuls of really, really small geckos, like oh, wow. geckos that were probably incubated at a slightly higher temperature. They probably hatched out a little sooner, probably somewhere in the 60 to 65 day mark. And they came out like one gram, you know, and then they just brought them to the show. Mm. <laughs> it's like, that's too small. That's just setting somebody up for failure, you know? Unless yeah. they have experience tech caring for hatchlings and dealing with the idiosyncrasies that go along with, you know, trying to get a hatchling started, then there's no, why, why do that? You're not doing anybody any favors. You know what I mean? It's an interesting uh, topic you bring up because in the tarantula hobby, it's kind of the opposite sometimes. And that's mm. not something I've spoken out on a lot just because I don't want to have to deal with the backlash from tarantula breeders. <laughs> you know, like I don't want that target on my back, but it does sometimes seem a little unethical when maybe not unethical. I don't even know if I want to use a word that strong. Um, sure. but dang, dang, not, I don't even say dangerous, uh, but you know, the, a, a spiderling, um, or a spider will, you know, lay its eggs and then they'll, they'll hatch out, they'll bust them open, like they'll rip open the egg sack and separate everybody. And they'll wait a couple of end stars, you know, a couple of molts. And, but it's like sometimes, especially with dwarf tarantulas, you're buying a spiderling, you're paying 50 bucks or a hundred bucks for this species. And then you receive it in the mail and it's smaller than a quarter of an inch. You know, it's like two centimeters or something like that. You know, it's like this, uh, this tiny little, I mean, it, it like fit on the tip of your pinky nail. You know what I mean? Like it's a tiny little spider and they're so fragile at that size. And uh, it's it sometimes I feel like that, that it, that's setting somebody up for failure. You know, they want, especially when you're talking about new world terrestrial species that live 30 years you get a spider link, it's going to be a small spider for five years, maybe longer. You know, it's it takes a while for them to grow. And if you're not experienced with keeping spiderlings and checking up on them and making sure, you know, you're, you're, they got good ventilation and humidity and are eating, uh, you know, you see it all the time. People drop $100 on a specific species they really wanted. And the only thing they could find was a spiderling in a couple of weeks later it's dead or a couple of months later it's dead or even a couple of years later, you know, it's like, that's even worse because they've invested so much time on top of the money and then it still dies uh, during a molt because maybe the humidity wasn't nearly as high as it should have been or something like that. And it's kind of, so part of me is like, we shouldn't be selling spiderlings this small unless it's to somebody that has a lot of experience doing that. Maybe like breeder to breeder can be selling those spiderlings. Like there should be some kind of, uh, you know, standardized size is like, okay, when they're, they're well-established at this point, you know, which is usually around the juvenile stage and be like, I got a well-established juvenile that that's when it will hit the market for, you know, your normal keepers. But 
it's also like I was saying, some of those species that could that means they would breed it and have to sit on this spiderling for years before they could actually start marketing it. Which you know, it's not doesn't make a good business sense. So I don't oh, see yeah. that that will happen. Yeah, I mean that all makes sense. I mean, and it, you see varying degrees of you know the way breeders do their stuff. So, and I think it all has to do with. You know, if you're in a position to be able to keep geckos for longer, you know, and get them larger, or if you're just doing it at such a level that you have a mix, you know, you always have a mix all the time. You're you're making so many baby geckos that you're always going to have some that are in that, you know, larger juvenile to sub-adult stage, and then you're going to have those juveniles that are smaller. For me, I, I have one of two choices. I can produce the geckos throughout the season and not sell any at all, not do any shows or anything until the end of the year or the beginning of next year so that I have, you know, geckos that are just big enough to start selling. Or I can, you know, really pump them with food, not like power feed or anything, but just make sure they get their bugs twice a week. They're definitely eating Pangea and get them to that three to four to maybe five gram mark and start, you know, marketing them quicker. And for me, mm-hmm. that's what's keeping enough fundage coming in to just at least put some money back into the care of the geckos that I'm going to keep here. You know what I mean? My breeders buy food, buy new plants because a lot of my stuff has artificial plants. And sometimes I cycle them out. I do wash them occasionally. Like I'll take all the plants out and do like a big wash, you know, with just like a Dawn soap and hot water and you know triple rinse or whatever and then dry. But sometimes the mm-hmm. plants just get worn out when they're artificial and I want to buy new stuff, you know. So yeah. mostly that's where all the fundage that comes from selling geckos goes to is just taking care of what I have right now. There's no profit in it whatsoever. Uh, yeah. At this point. It's just kind of, uh, yeah, it's, it's just paying for the hobby itself. A little bit, not even totally. I mean, I'm still coming out of yeah. stuff, obviously. Occasionally I, if I have a good, you know, couple of shows or if I happen to sell some stuff online, then I'll, I'll have enough fundage to pull in another animal for a new project or something like that. If my wife approves, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, you, so you're mainly just selling them like morph market and then taking them to expos and, and selling there. Yeah. If I sell online, I do it through either morph market or fauna. Although I've, I've fauna was fine, like up until this year, but it seems like it, for anything that's not obscure, Fauna classifieds yeah. doesn't seem to work as well anymore. Like if you got mainstream hmm. animals like crested geckos, I haven't gotten any bites on anything I've posted on Fauna recently. I haven't posted on Morph Market a lot recently because I never actually became a paying member of Morph Market. Uh, mm-hmm. and I'm considering doing it soon because they have the free, you know, the or they have the basic membership that's not terribly expensive. I think it's like $120, $130 for a whole year. And then you get a little bit more inventory on the free. There used to be some more, uh, flexibility you used to have, be able to have more animals and a higher, uh, inventory when it comes to, you know, dollar value. Now you can mm-hmm. have like three animals posted at a time and the total dollar value, dollar value of all your posts can't be more than $750, which mm. it puts, puts a little bit of a constraint depending on what you're trying to sell. Yeah. Um, and, and honestly, I just haven't been selling online lately because our expo here that we have, the one that you came to, the Tri-State Expo, is really up and running very well. And we're having shows like monthly. And I've had a lot of problems with FedEx over the last year. So I'm mm. like, just trying to avoid that if I can. <laughs> FedEx Makes is sense. Just, 
it has just completely fallen apart since COVID. Like that was their excuse, you know, for a long time. It was like COVID's got everything all messed up. It's like, okay, COVID's got everything messed up. I got it. But now it seems like everything that happens, every little thing that happens just sends FedEx into a complete tailspin. And just going crazy. So, um, thunderstorms moved across the Midwest. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, FedEx yeah. is I shut mean, down today. <laughs> And I asked other breeders about this because I was like, it seemed odd to me. I had a gecko that was mm-hmm. coming from where I live here in Huntington and going to near Chicago, basically, Elk Grove Village in Illinois. And it got stuck in Memphis because of a storm. And then they accidentally sent it to Canada. Oh, my gosh. Kind of kind of freaked me out because I was like, you know, you have to have an import and export license to be able to move stuff, you know, over right. international borders. So luckily, you know, I've I've started using Reptiles to You and the customer service there is awesome. So she was able to call up Canada and they were like, oh, my God, we're so sorry. It was a misscan. You know, we won't open the box. We'll send it back without inspection. But it had to go all the way back to Memphis and then and then finally to Chicago. Luckily, the weather was temperate and the gecko made it. So yeah. no worries. But just recently, it seems like almost every time I send something, something happens. It gets delayed. And then if I order anything that has to be shipped through FedEx, whether it's just gecko food or just some other thing that we buy, you know, around the house, it always comes late or they don't bring it to the right house. And it's like, oh, it's just, mm. let's just sell it to shows for now. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Now, that does kind of bring me to another question I was wanted to ask you. Um, like when it comes to the tarantula hobby, prices are pretty standardized. Like I know this species typically sells for a hundred bucks. It may be less the smaller it is or the younger it is. You know, the larger it gets, the more expensive it gets. You know, if it's female, it's going to be even more expensive. So, you know, so like a full-grown adult female, like especially a young female, that she, she's going to be like the most expensive version of that spider. So, it, and there's no like price fixing or anything. Like you, you can shop around and sometimes find people that are selling for a lot more, people that are selling for a lot less. Uh, but generally, the price is the price within certain countries. Um, but going to these reptile expos, seeing crested geckos or, you know, other geckos, it's like, well, this one's $50 and this one's $2,000 and I can't see much of a difference. So like, how do you figure out what to charge for a gecko? Is it based on the genetics? Is it based on how much time and effort and money you've put into it? I mean, I mean, how, how does, how do you determine what a gecko is worth? I certainly can't speak for everybody, but I think that for... I think that probably most common and definitely for me, it's a number of factors that go into it. I like to check, you know, the market. (laughs) I like to go on morph market for things, you know, that are similar to what I have and just kind of look at what the current market value is, you know, maybe look at some sold animals and just look at other posts. That's part of it. The other part of it is, you know, how much time and effort I feel like I put into it. You know, Um, unfortunately, I think that there's a correlation between, some of the people who have tables full of $50 geckos and people who bring geckos that are like only one or one and a half grams to a show. So that does happen from time to time. I've noticed a slight correlation there. Um, maybe they're just producing a lot. They want to move them out as fast as possible. And they know that if they price them for 50 or 60 bucks, they will go, you know, cause everybody else at the show is going to have them for a hundred or a couple hundred bucks minimum, yeah. depending on what they are. So yeah, it's, it's a market value thing for me. It's also time and effort. Um, but it, another factor that comes into it, and 
for me, it's not been as big because I, I have a limited knowledge on the lineage of the things I currently have, at least going far back. But lineage is a big deal. Genetics is a big deal too, but lineage is even more of a big deal with crested geckos. Because like I mentioned earlier, we have a lot of polymorphism. So sometimes you can get a really nice like tricolor crested gecko, another really nice tricolor crested gecko, and one or two of the babies that season may not be as nice a tricolor, you know, as they are, or they may be slightly different. Um, but knowing the parentage and, you know, the, how, how uh, clean that bloodline is going back also plays into it a lot. So, you know, if you're a well-established breeder and you're working with lines from, you know, people who, you know, go way back and they've tracked everything and they've bred strictly for, you know, the best color and the best structure, then you can, you can justifiably charge more for your animals. I gotcha. Um, just, uh, shift gears cause we're running a little long here. I don't want to take up all your time, but in oh, addition to, to breeding and going to shows and, and selling on morph market, stuff like that, you also have a YouTube channel and a podcast. Like how did yeah. you decide you wanted to, to start a podcast? Where, where did that, the inception of that come from? I mean, yeah, it just started from basically discovering reptile podcast myself you know what i mean and and learning and starting to listen to them so it started with honestly it started with uh joe phalen's podcast that he had called from the ground up i Mm -hmm. saw that on youtube on his channel first and then i obviously realized that he was posting you know audio versions on the podcast hosting sites too so i subscribed to those so that i could listen in the car when i was at home i would have him playing on on the you know, on the computer or the TV. And I just really enjoyed listening to him. And I liked the idea of bringing people on to a show, you know, on YouTube to be able to tell people the things that I can't tell them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like I, I could make a video about Crested Gecko Care, you know, and how I do it. And, you know, just right. give some advice that way. And, but with the disclaimer that there's multiple ways to do this. But if I bring in somebody else then I can get their perspective on it, I can learn mm-hmm. from it. They and my audience can all, geez, I'm just hitting my desk like constantly. <laughs> Every time I move my hand, I'm just like punching my desk. <laughs> and it's very wobbly. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I can learn from them. My audience can obviously learn from them. You know, we talked uh, in an earlier episode of, of my show uh, with Bill Strand, who you've also spoken with of Community yeah. Academy. And he said, you know, that he liked the idea of, of, bringing on experts to talk and that's what he likes to do too because you know he's done this for a long time and he's arguably an expert on chameleons but maybe he's not an expert on all things chameleon or all species chameleon so you you bring on somebody else to to have you know a conversation with and learn from basically that that was the inspiration from it and you know it started with me telling my friend Gabe, my best friend, that maybe we should do a podcast, man. Wouldn't it be cool if we could do a podcast? And we, we tried like just like recording our phone calls with each other, and that was a little wonky and weird. And then <laughs> I started the YouTube channel, and then I didn't post anything on it. And then one day I was just randomly going to add some more springtails and isopods to a, some enclosure. So I was like, maybe I'll just make a video about it and see what happens. And I made like a 25-minute video. It was kind of long. And I think Wally Kern was the first person to comment on it. And I was like, dude, I know this guy, Supreme Gecko, Wally Kern. He commented yeah. on the video. That's crazy. I was like, all right, well, maybe I'll just try to keep making videos. So I made some herping videos. I made some videos of me making enclosures and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Got to like 50 subscribers. And then I was like, well, I, I thought I started thinking about the podcast again. I said, Gabe, maybe we can just do the podcast live on YouTube, on my channel, because at least I have 50 subscribers, so at least 50 people might see it. 
as opposed yeah. to just, you know, like trying to post it on some random RSS feed without any advertisement at all. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that's where it started. Um, we did our first episode and then my brother texted me immediately and was like, Hey man, what the hell? You, you don't want me to be on your podcast? And I was like, <laughs> well, no, that's not it. I was like, I just, it's a reptile podcast. I didn't know if you'd be, and he's like, no, I want to be on it. And I was like, okay. And then he became a permanent fixture because he's awesome. Like he, most of the time he keeps the conversation rolling and, you know, kind of keeps us on our toes. So nice grew from there, man. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, cool. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, I probably want to pick your brain at some point about trying to get this thing onto other platforms because we've had comments about why not put this on Spotify or whatever, you know, why not oh, yeah. on Apple? And because we're currently just doing it on YouTube and I know that the videos are not going to perform as well there because they're just, they're hour or two hours long. People don't yeah. watch an hour and two hour long youtube videos generally speaking and youtube doesn't recommend them i mean it's very rare yeah like they'll they'll occasionally try it out and then if people aren't clicking on it because they'll see that yeah. like two hour I, I don't got two hours to watch a video you know so they they, they don't <laughs> yeah. but unless you're like a very recognized name or something you know but right. yeah you, the spotify and apple Podcasts, like that's i mean i, I have a, a pretty decent following but even my podcast on youtube maybe i'll get a couple thousand views but compare yeah. that to the downloads i get you know it's like why why am i even bothering posting it on yeah you know, on youtube but if i don't then people I, I of course have a couple you know dozen people that are like hey we want we want to watch this on youtube we don't download on spotify so yeah, you know, that's why i like to do both um, but yeah yeah you definitely gotta do that's where that's where the audience is you know they're not podcast audience not as many of them are on YouTube. So I think you'd see a, a good a good spike if you do that. And for the most part, I mean, there's a little bit of expense in finding somewhere to host it. But, you know, a lot of the places that will host it, once you do that, you just fill out some forms and they take care of sending it to all the other, you know, platforms yep. and stuff. And, you know, and if you get on Apple Podcasts, you're on like 80% of the other podcasts. Like they all just pull their registry or whatever from Apple Podcasts. So it makes it nice and easy. Uh, but yeah, yeah, you should definitely do that. I actually was watching one of your videos this morning when I was having breakfast because uh, nice. you had just uploaded a uh, a herping video, West Virginia herping video. Yeah, and I was like, I'm curious where he went. And you were out in Wayne County, <laughs> West Virginia. I, I didn't recognize exactly where you were, but I spent a lot of time running those hills, and uh, when I was a younger, and yeah, I I was wondering. Like I haven't, I haven't really dug too deep in your channel and watched the other ones, but I know like at least where I am up here in Northern West Virginia, like I didn't head over like to Cooper's Rock or Davis and Elkins, you know, and like into the state forest and, you know, places like that and, and find some pretty cool, uh, mainly I'm searching when I'm out there, I'm looking for spiders and, uh, mushrooms. <laughs> I mean, like not psychedelic mushrooms. I just like taking photos of toadstools and stuff. So I'll wait a week yeah. or two after a big rain and go out there and try to get some cool macro shots. And then my wife and I, we just really love hiking. So that's kind of like our, that's our little vacation kind of like we're too stressed out. We're going to the mountains and we're going hiking. Um, but seeing you just kind of like walking around through Wayne County uh, brought back some memories, not so much Wayne County, but you know, I, I remember sometimes traveling down to like Mingo, uh, Logan County and doing something like that can get a little shady. You get up into some of these haulers, you know, walking around the woods, you might have somebody, you know, come out with a shotgun over their shoulder. Like, Hey, what are you doing on my property? <laughs> like, have you had, yeah. any, have you run into any issues okay. like that? Not recently. Um, okay. Because, because I don't, so yeah, you may or may not know I'm a 
you know, I, I went to Marshall University for my undergrad. And when I was there for that, I worked with a lot of grad students in the herpetology lab. I sort of became their little go-get bitch. You know, like I, would, <laughs> I was the guy that would come with them and do all the grunt work for their, their thesis projects. But I saw some really cool things and got to go to some really cool places. Now, when I would go out with those guys, we would sometimes get into situations like that where we were close to people's property. And we've had, you know, we've been run off. We've been yelled at. We've had shotguns waved at us. Uh, but currently, with my my videos, when I try to do herping videos, I have a, a handful of places that I go that are pretty public access places. You know, they're they're you know parks or wildlife management area type places, and yeah. you know I don't really have to worry about that kind of stuff there. Uh, gotcha. I want to go more places, and I have some connections with some people who know places to go that I could probably get to take me, and we could see some really cool things. It's just getting all that together, you know, mm -hmm. I'm trying to make more connections as I go. So maybe I can go on some trips around the state with people to some places that maybe I've been before, but never really got to see anything, yeah. you know, and I can just feel confident that I've got somebody who knows the area, you know, can take me and show me where things are. I know these couple of areas around, you know, here where I go. So I don't really have trouble just driving out there one morning by myself and doing a bunch of flipping and seeing what I can turn up. Yeah. First, I thought you were out like at Barbersville Park or something. I'm like, where where is he? <laughs> but, I don't go there. Um, yeah, just because it's it's pretty urbanized. There's some cool yeah. stuff there, though. Don't get me wrong. When I was in Oklahoma, yeah, uh, I we had a what we call a bio blitz. They do it's you basically go to an area and you try to find all the living things that you can within 24 hours. So you basically just work mm -hmm. all day and all night, just try to identify as many things. So, uh, you know, we, we ran into some cool, uh, box turtles and some, uh, some, uh, black racers and stuff when we were there that day. Um, you know, as well as some interesting little crayfish and things like that in the pond. But yeah, yeah. when I was a kid, it was uh, it was beach fork. That was always my favorite place to go camping and, finding some some pretty cool I mean but that back then we find all kinds of salamanders and mm -hmm. you know newts and and just it was it was really frogs and snakes and spiders and it was fascinating I really enjoyed that uh, but I, it's not the same as it used to be you know a lot of those things are becoming well, endangered and disappearing just kind of heartbreaking but I know from experience sometimes just hiking because my wife's kind of a fly by the seat of her pants kind of person so sometimes we'll just be driving towards a park or something like that like we're gonna go hike this trail and she'll see something on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere and we'll pull over and we'll take pictures and we start exploring and hiking around and thinking and sometimes we're actually in the state park or you know i guess some of that down there in southern west virginia is now the national park now new river gorges uh a national park and we don't realize we've you know wandered out of the park boundary and now we're on private property you know, and it's like yeah. sometimes in Southern West Virginia, you know, it, it, I think coal is a, is a, is a, is a main, uh, export, but you know, I, I remember doing a, a research project when I was in college, which was got 20 years ago. Uh, and it, the, at that point, one of the number one cash crops out of West Virginia was marijuana, you know? So it's like, you're down in Southern oh, West Virginia yeah. in those Hills, you might stumble upon a field. Uh, that the DEA hasn't found yet. And, so, and it could be dangerous, you know, there could be some booby traps. There could be uh, a couple of rednecks out there with a, a rifle over their shoulder. They're going to warn you off. And, you know, so yeah. it, sometimes I, I, it would get a little sketchy. Um, 
so I, that's why I've never really done a whole lot of exploring down in Southern West Virginia, just cause I mean, but not, it's not even drugs. Like there's just some people that own a lot of land and they don't want any, they think you're hunting or something like that. They don't want you messing with their land. So they'll run you off. Um, I haven't had that issue up North much, but there's also, I don't think it's as, uh, as, 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 I don't even know, as wild as some of the places down south you know what i mean like yeah. i'm a little too close to pittsburgh and cleveland and cincinnati and stuff like that so it's gotcha. you know you don't have miles and miles of forest but yeah so i was like watching it and enjoying your video but also at the same time in the back of my head i was a little worried i was like man i hope he knows where yeah. he is <laughs> yeah i knew where i was nothing to worry about um you, you say beach work that's funny that's where i did about 98 percent of my thesis research was beach work oh yeah I worked on, uh, I looked at roadkill um, in amphibians, pool breeding amphibians, specifically marbled salamanders. There's a pretty yeah. big population there. So I did that um, and uh, did some recording stuff with frogs. That's actually where Audacity came into play. <laughs> nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. There's, there's some amazing creatures out here and there's so much untamed wilderness still in West Virginia. You know, you get, especially when you get up in the hills and stuff. Uh, I, I just, I love hiking around here and, but like I'll find snakes, um, but never, I know, you know, there's no tarantulas up here, no scorpions, like the things I'm really into, uh, you know, they, they're just not native here, native, but like some kind of bark scorpion I've been told, but it's like rare to find. Like, yeah. Yeah. You can't just turn it up anywhere. <laughs> right. Get lucky. Yeah. There are some pseudo scorpions and stuff like that, but yeah, I mean, and then I I think I remember the scorpion that you're talking about, but I mean they're they're, they're very small. I mean, we've got some cool wolf spiders and oh, stuff, yeah. but yeah, and somebody on Facebook the other day was posting this thing, and oh my god, some irresponsible pet keeper let their tarantula get loose and it, it wandered into my apartment, and I just found it dead in my cabinet. And look how big this freaking tarantula is. These should be outlawed. I'm like. Oh, that's a wolf spider. That's not a tarantula at all. <laughs> like it's dead and curled up, and I could I can tell from your grainy photo that's definitely not a tarantula. But if you don't know anything about spiders, you just see a big hairy spider. So that's where your mind goes. But yeah, so I had to, I do a little education there. Uh, but yeah, I, th I think I, I'm jealous of you. Like I I grew up in Huntington, where you are right now. Uh, I refused to go to Marshall University just because it was it felt like yeah, you go through high school and it's like the majority of people that graduated from my high school go to Marshall because it's right there. That, you know, it's like I wanted to get out of town. I wanted to get away from my parents. I wanted to get away from my classmates. I wanted to reinvent myself. So I was like, I'm not going to Marshall. And looking back at my life, that was a really dumb idea because it was a good school. And at the time, being an in-state, in-town resident, it would have been really, really cheap. <laughs> you know, like what I paid for books at the college I went to would have covered my entire tuition at Marshall. And it would have been a better school with more opportunities. And it's also like at the time, I did, I never, I was like, I, I enjoyed animals. I enjoyed reptiles and inverts and stuff like that. But I never thought of that as something to study, you know, like I didn't like math. So then I didn't really get too much into science. And, you know, I just, it didn't seem like a good option for me. Now, looking back, you know, hearing what you're doing down there and some other like uh, research in scorpions or something, I keep finding papers that are published from Marshall University. And it's These like, wow, there was this yeah. wealth of knowledge right there, like blocks from where I grew up that I didn't even, I wasn't even aware that was available to me. Uh, so, yeah, it's, I kick myself sometimes uh, for not, not I mean, get, joining the thundering decisions. herd. <laughs> yeah, we make decisions when we're that age based on 
other things. You know what I mean? Like Marshall was mm-hmm. my escape. I'm not from here originally. So, I mean, I came, I'm originally from Florida. I was living in Newport News, Virginia with my dad and my stepmom. And I just wanted to be gone as far away as possible when it came time for college. So I started doing yeah. searches for herpetology and colleges and Marshall's like the first thing that popped up. Dr. Pauly's herpetology lab. Okay. They study reptiles and amphibians there. Okay. My modest SAT scores will get me in. Sounds good. Let's do it. <laughs> so I went and I paid the out of state tuition, you know, mm, yeah. <laughs> took out the student loans and stuff to go there. So, um, it was my escape. Um, and I'm only back here just because, you know, it made sense to come back. Like, I mean, it's a good, good place to come back and do the stuff I want to do. So, yeah. I mean, I don't know what their tuition is now and I'm, I'm older than you, but I know when I was looking at it, it was $1,200 a semester, something like that. Yeah. For out of state, when I went in 2006, I was probably somewhere on the order of with, this is with everything. This is with food and this is with housing and all that. It was north of yeah. 10 grand. Yeah. Cause I remember yeah. after my freshman year at the private school I went to, I was like, what this cost me in tuition would have paid for room board and four years of books and classes at Marshall. Like, I, I don't think I made the right decision here. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. What can you do? Um, you but do? yeah, man, it's, it, I mean, I have a fondness for you and your content just because you're from West Virginia. And I felt like when I first started making YouTube videos and posting pictures on Instagram about tarantulas and stuff, like I didn't, it, it I didn't, I was having a hard time connecting with other people in the state. Like there's two people in town, like where I live that I know for sure keep tarantulas. Um, and I think one of them actually moved out. Uh, like he went somewhere else. I mean, I'm close to Pittsburgh. So, you know, there, there's a pretty big, you know, there's a lot of people there. There's a good community. There's some cool pet stores and stuff, but you know, down, down in Huntington, Charleston, Beckley, you know, throughout West Virginia, there people are listening to the podcast that don't even really realize West Virginia is a state, let alone know any of the names we're dropping. But <laughs> you yeah, know, it's, it's like just uh, Western Virginia. Yeah, <laughs> I've heard that a lot of times. So uh, you know, in doing this and starting to like kind of flash the West Virginia f- flag a little bit, I guess you could say, or wave it, yeah. wearing a West like a Cooper's Rock hat or something like that. People are like, I didn't know you were in West Virginia, so I met some cool people that way. There's a couple of tarantula breeders actually in West Virginia, but it's like ones in southern West Virginia and the others like in the eastern panhandle. So they're really nowhere near me. Uh but it it's cool that they're in the state. And you know, now no now I know you we're down in Huntington and it's starting to meet a lot of people. So it's it's you know uh Sean or Shane, the guy from Tri State Animal. Sean, okay. Yeah. I always second guess that. Sean, I mean, he seems like a, a good guy and yeah. there's a lot of people that he's got a good thing going there. And I think that's really, it's a cool expo. He's got kind of tour in the state and met some, you know, some pretty cool people that are either from West Virginia or in the area, you know, the surrounding States. So it, it feels good to kind of get plugged in with a home base and, and not just be talking to people in California and New York and Florida <laughs> places that I, I rarely go. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah, definitely. I felt like there was a, a community where I moved from, but I, when yeah. I first got here, you know, I didn't really realize that there was anything going on. You know, you, 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 I don't know why you don't think so, but you know, you're just in a new place, you know, and it's like, uh, there's probably not the same kind of 
people around here that there are, you know, back where I came from. But then I realized slowly over time over the last several years that there's a, there's a strong reptile community here and it's getting stronger. And yeah, you know, John's expo is definitely a big part of that. Um, you know, he started out going to a different expo and, you know, as a vendor and then, you know, decided to get into this venture and he's grown it a lot. It's come a long, long way. It started out as a little kind of rinky dink thing and it's turning into kind of a big deal. And he's got high standards, which I really respect, you know, for vendors. He wants them to have, you know, good quality, healthy animals and, you know, good business practices too. You know, we've lost people, yeah. both of those things being violated. And I think it's only fair. So. I thought it was pretty impressive. You guys did that show in Huntington and there was uh, people waiting in line to get in for what looked yeah. like hours. <laughs> it's like, it was that, hours, that's yeah. not something I think I, 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 I never thought I would see something like that around here. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Hours. It was part of that was a little bit of a miscommunication and kind of a mess up, you know, on the, the end of the, the venue, they were originally letting too many people in and then they started going back to letting the right amount of people in, you know, at a time. So we ended up having to stay for a couple extra hours, but it wasn't bad. I mean, it was really nice to get in touch with the local community here in such a big way. You know what I mean? Uh, as far as, you know, not just, you know, maybe having somebody stumble across your page on Facebook or whatever, you know, you're right there. You know, all these different people that live in this area get to see what you have and what you do and talk to you if they so please, you know, and right. it's, it's a good way to make connections. The shows are are mostly about that. Um, obviously you want to sell stuff, um, because you know, you're trying to build business, but it's, uh, right. it doesn't always go that way. Sometimes it's mostly just connections and, and just really talking with people and, you know, and making friends with the other vendors and stuff too. And just building that community is really important as well. Yeah. I saw on his page, he posted that the tri-state animal expo next time they do a show in Huntington, is going to move to the big civic arena. Is that still, that's still happening? Yep. Yeah, the, the, that would be exciting. That be, yeah, we're having to do that because we were in the conference center, which is in the same building, but it's a smaller mm -hmm. area. So that's why we ended up having to stay longer. And it was taking so long to get people in the door because they were regulating the number of people that were coming in. So with the arena, there's a larger capacity. So hopefully we'll be able to move people in and out much faster or much yeah. more efficiently anyway. Yeah. I mean, when that, when that show happens, I'm definitely going to have to go back to Huntington, visit my mom and sister and, and check out the show yeah, just because I think that'd be, be awesome. <laughs> yeah, it'd be good. To, it'd be good to see you again. Um, I think we'll be back in Moundsville again before we're there though. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always I'm cool with mistaken, that. So. Yeah. <laughs> I actually was talking to a local videographer, um, just some guy I met on Instagram and, uh, we have, this is probably getting a little too technical, but we use the same brand of camera a micro four thirds camera. Like I use Lumix cameras. So you, there's only specific lenses you can use for those cameras. And so that's like a kind of a subculture of, uh, videographers and photographers that, that use this style of stuff. And, and he is in that. And I'm like, wow, somebody that uses the same gear I do and, and does similar stuff lives in my, you know, I mean, he's not in my town, but he's like right across the river or something. And I was seeing a lot of the stuff he was posting and, uh, you know, was talking to him about this expo and he has some video and, and photos he wants to get from the prison. And, uh, so I think the next time you guys come, he's actually going to come with me. So I have like a cameraman. He's going to help me get some shots. I'm going to help him get some shots for what he's doing. So I was like, this, this could be a lot of fun. We could really make uh, some cool content. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to the next time you guys are up here. That'll, that'll be fun. Cause we're going to pay for the pass to get into the prison. 
because you can like oh, yeah. if you're a photographer you could pay like a couple hundred bucks and they let you just roam with no guide for eight hours or something <laughs> it's like oh wow oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're going to be in there for for a good part of the day, just getting cool shots. <laughs> yeah, that'll be awesome. Yeah, have to bring a couple snakes that. with us or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> snakes slithering around the the jail cells or something. I don't know. We'll figure it out. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. Well, man, I I am I'm very appreciative that you've been willing to come on. I I know oh, that sure. we've been talking for almost two hours now. So <laughs> I was trying to fast. keep these around an hour, and then it's like, oh wow, we're at the two hour mark. People are going to get bored <laughs> of hearing my voice. I'm sure they've, well, they've or, enjoyed or everything mine. you said. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, I, I just want real quick, if you could just kind of let everybody know your social medias, you know, where they can find your podcast, where they can find, you know, all the information about you. Just kind of give yourself a little plug there. Yeah, man, absolutely. So um, obviously we're called Gecko Galaxy. And you can find us on Facebook. Uh, just search Gecko Galaxy. It should pop right up. Uh, we have an Instagram as well. Uh, it's a little bit of a funkier name. We're at gecko dot underscore dot galaxy. Uh, just had to go with that because apparently it was already taken. So, uh, <laughs> it is what it is. Uh, but it's been set up for a while. So I feel like I'm the OG. Uh, and when you want to watch, uh, you want to check out our YouTube, man, I would, I would greatly appreciate it. Uh, you can find us at Gecko Galaxy on YouTube. And the podcast is called the Reptile Hangouts podcast. We have a separate playlist on the YouTube channel for that. And we stream live to YouTube uh, every Friday night, currently at 9.30 p.m. That is subject to possibly change soon. We are talking amongst ourselves because I do host the show with my brother and my friend Gabe about possibly changing the time. But currently, it's 9.30 p.m. We'll be on this Friday. I'll go ahead and just do a shameless plug. Mike Stefani, Mike's Monitors. If you're into monitors, he's the guy to talk to. We're talking to him on Friday. So uh, Very cool. Yeah, and the cool thing with uh, streaming it live is that you can have some audience participation. People can get in the live yeah. chat and ask questions and stuff like that. I mean, that that's a cool little feature to to doing it live like that. So I think that's really cool. Yeah, we like it, and I think we'll continue to do that even if we start to move into the whole you know audio podcast thing because there's I think there's a way to to get those videos downloaded so they can possibly be edited if you need to or pull audio from them. Also, too, mm -hmm. you've, you've you've taught me something just in asking me to do things the way you do them for your podcast, using Audacity <laughs> to record the audio. So if I can get my boys on board with that, then maybe we can do an audio podcast version a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah, it's very cool. Well, man, thank you so much. I, I appreciate you taking time out of your day and, and coming and answering all my questions about crested geckos and sure. – uh, you know, uh, what's the right, I, I have so, such a hard time finding words sometimes when I'm recording, but you know, I felt like I knew what I was doing, but sometimes it just, if it, it's reassuring, that's the word I was looking for, reassuring, coming on to reassure me on some things like, yes, you're doing that right. No, you don't need to worry about that. Like it, it's one yeah. thing to know it, but it's, it's another thing to have somebody kind of validate that, like, you know, or give me pointers. So You've been a, a great resource. You sold me a beautiful gecko, and uh, he's thriving and doing well. And I really appreciate that. And the way that you just kind of go about handling yourself and your business, you know, like just the information that you're willing to give people. And you're not just one of those guys that just is in it for a quick buck and and slinging geckos to anybody with a you know a wad full of, of money in their pocket, you know. So I think that's it's uh, very admirable that you have some ethics in your business because uh, you know I think. A lot of people do, but not as many as there should be, you know. So, well, it was it was good talking to you, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, you too. Is there anything else you wanted Thank to you. say before uh, we sign off here? 
No, man, just thank you very much for, uh, you know, for wanting to have me on. We, we loved having you on our show, and uh, I'm honored to be here. Um, obviously honored to have uh, one of my cool little geckos make the, some YouTube debu- debuts on another channel. That was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, awesome. just thank you for – thanks for having me on, man. I really, really appreciate it. I had a great time. Oh, thank you. Oh, that's, that's good to hear. Uh, one last thing before we go. Uh, would you be willing sometime in the future to take me on one of your West Virginia herping trips? Oh, absolutely, dude. Yeah. I mean, awesome. You, you get down here. <laughs> I don't know a lot about everywhere. So, yeah. um, but if you want to come down here and, and go around the stomping ground where I go, then yeah, absolutely. Um, or if cool. you've got some places that you at least know how to navigate, then maybe I can, uh, throw in the, the knowledge of the microhabitats and stuff, and maybe we'll have some success finding stuff in your neck of the woods. You never know. We'll see. One of the yeah. other. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right, man. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. It's been a lot of fun. Again, uh, it is Gecko Galaxy. Go check him out. Follow him on Instagram. Check out the podcast. Uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel. And, you know, if you need a gecko, check him out. He's at all these different tri-state exotic animal expos, and you can find him on Morph Market. Is it the same name on Morph Market? Just in case somebody's yeah, same wondering. Yeah, name on Morph Market. Uh, it's, it's okay. I don't know if they they if it's like an algorithm thing where it doesn't come up if maybe you're not a paid member, but it is a little hard to make it come up. I've noticed, <laughs> but I'm oh, on there. Okay. I don't have anything listed right now. But yeah, definitely contact me. The best way is just contact me over Facebook or, or Instagram, and we can discuss uh, you know anything. And I do ship. I just have been not doing it lately, but I can do it. Right on. All right, man. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, If you're not following me on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever, make sure you subscribe, follow, and leave that five-star review because that definitely helps if you enjoy the podcast. If you don't like it, don't don't worry about it. But, yeah, doing that five-star review takes you no time, and it really helps boost as far as our ranking and and getting out there in search. So uh, you guys are awesome. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next podcast. Goodbye. (laughs) 